Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Fathers and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly, for a voice of crime is heard out of Zion. For we are greatly confused, for death has come into our ghettos to cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary 
because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Reggie. The number to reach us this evening to join the conversation is 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. The listen-only line, if you don't have computer access, access to a smartphone, iPad, tablet, or any other device, is 562. It's 605, I'm sorry. 605-562-3140. That's 605-562-3140. Four zero and that access code is nine five eight five nine zero and pound. Again, that access code is nine five eight five nine zero and the pound sign. We'll be taking calls from that uh, conference line again this week. If you choose to participate from the conference line, you just hit star six one, and we can see your call and get you involved in the conversation. That's star six one from the conference line. We're streaming live at two locations www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. And time for awakening streams live on TuneIn. Um, TuneIn is a free app on any of your devices, your iPad, your iPhone, your desktop, your tablet. Uh, TuneIn is a free app. You can download it and in the search engine just type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon so you can listen to the program live even in your car that's time for awakening uh streaming live through the tune in app drop us an email at time for an awakening at gmail.com that's time for an awakening at gmail.com time for awakening also has a fan page on facebook just type in the facebook search engine type in time for an awakening radio program there you'll see it uh, a lot of interesting content always posted by Brother Edge. And before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's time for an Awakening Radio program with the fan page on Facebook. Also, Time for Awakening Media has been launched in your address bar on your any of your devices. In that address bar, just type in timeforanawakening.com. That's timeforanawakening.com. That'll take you to Time for Awakening Media. There you'll always see interesting blogs, articles, uh, podcast of the programs that you can download uh, at a later time and listen or share with your friends. Also coming soon, some exciting uh, new products that you'll be able to get on timeforawakening.com. So make that one of your favorites. Um, put it in your address bar. That's timeforawakening.com. It'll take you to Time for an Awakening Media. Tonight, uh, we're scheduled to have two special guests. Miss Carolyn Hall will be joining us. Uh, She's one of the founders of Black Expo in New York. That'll be in New York in, uh, 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 this year. And coming very soon, she'll give you all the information on the Black Expo New York. And uh, she'll be on with us to discuss the historical components of the Black Expo. And in the second portion of our program, we'll be joined by Obe Egbona Jr., Pan-Africanist playwright and U.S. correspondent to the Herald. That's Zimbabwe's national newspaper. And we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, 
our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Are you one of the million conscious black people who believes that we have the collective wherewithal to affect real economic and political change? If so, band together in solidarity by joining the one million conscious black voters and contributors. Choose leadership that will work for the best interests of black people. We can no longer sit on the sidelines and expect things to change for the better without a significant number of black people playing a pivotal role in that effort. Will you be one of the million that recognizes that black dollars matter? Are you that person who believes it's time to leverage our votes for reciprocity from politicians? If so, then you should join the 1 million conscious black voters and contributors with members in 29 states and growing every day. We encourage you to sign up and help spread the word by sharing our website i am one of the million.com that's i am one of the million.com antiquity to the present our people need to develop a new paradigm it's time for an awakening sundays 7 p.m with your hosts elliot and reggie welcome back to time for an awakening and uh before we go to our first guest uh, this evening, uh, Brother Edge, before we go to our first guest, any uh, thing going on in the community, any community announcements, anything of that nature? I'm kind of running behind, brother. Uh, <laughs> I'm listening to this town hall uh, with Black Talk Network uh, with Scotty Reed, so I don't I don't have anything. We could uh, move on to uh, Carolyn Hall, and we can discuss this Black Expo that's coming up next weekend. Well, our first guest this evening is... Uh... Sister Carolyn Hall, she's with the Black Expo New York, and she's coming on to share with our listening audience some uh, uh, interesting history around the Black Expo and uh, answer any of your questions and to uh, just give us an overview of what's going to happen next week in uh, New York City. 
Miss Hall, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing great. I'm glad. Carolyn, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So I got I to gotta let everyone know that I had the pleasure of meeting you through phone conversations from Brother Terry Jackson in North Carolina. And, and I was able to, even though things didn't pan out the way I wanted to with some business prospects that I was trying to do here in Philadelphia, you mm-hmm. still were able to give me some good ideas and other um, strategies that I was able to utilize and other things that I was doing. And I think as black people, if things don't work out monetarily with business and the relationship is still good, you still need to have that open door policy because we need to help each other. You know, when you help someone else, Mm -hmm. you become successful and vice versa, vice versa. So uh, this is a good sister. I met through uh, brother, uh, brother Terry Jackson out of North Carolina and I want to, first, before we start the program off, uh, tell the listener audience a little bit about you, your background, your business, and then we'll move forward, sister. Well, thank you, first of all, both of you and the network for having me as a guest. I'm excited and uh, excited for a couple of different reasons. I haven't really gotten on an interview or a station yet that is centered around our culture per se. So I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to be a part of something that's so historical, the Black Expos. And I love the intro you gave me. And I want to say thank you to you too, Reggie, because I agree. And that is probably why we hit it off, you know, and connect it because it is about empowering and helping other people. And I too thank Terry for that. And, uh, That is what we do, actually. I'm the president of CL3 Agency, and we're a strategic market and event planning company. So everything pretty much under the umbrella when it comes to marketing and strategically and logistically, operationally, helping you structure your business. Uh, Once you get that structure, what are you going to do with that? You have to present yourself, whether that's online or in person, so we help people determine what's best for them, you know, because there's different strategies for different type of industries. Uh, And then that, of course, filters out to how your, uh, what social networks, what kind of networks, like even with media, like yourself, that you need to be in. So we help them, we do the research for them and assist them how they need it. And uh, we do focus a lot with our speakers and coaches because the core of CL3 is we have to be doing what we love to do. And that is educating people, encouraging them, empowering them, inspiring and motivating them, but also providing that ongoing support. So we do keep a a, a fairly personable kind of feel to our agency and the clients that we sign on. And I do it on a yearly basis so that we can work with them throughout the year. So it's not just a hit or miss type of thing, because you got to grow together, you got to move, you got to shift, uh, especially in this 21st century, you have to be innovative, and sometimes the strategy that you have on paper, you got to switch it up, so uh, in order to do that, that's building lasting relationships, and in order for us to service you, we got to get to know you, you got to get to know us, we got to find the flow, so that's why we, we do it that, that way. Uh, the event planning component, hmm, 
excuse me, the event planning com- component, I'm a firm believer that if you don't have events in your marketing strategy, you need to. So we haven't really done, we've been around for 13 years, and in the beginning we did a lot of events just to build our network and to use those live events to show people the caliber of what we can bring to them. But we haven't really done any individual company events. They're usually tied into planning conferences or or symposiums for the clients because I try to use our platform, our social network, to get them awareness. So we're pushing them in the spotlight. So that's the other thing I'm equally excited about because this what we're doing at the Expo is really our first tangible product. We're a service-providing company, so I don't have any tangible products. Our clients do, books and learning kits and material, but we don't. So that's what we will be debuting, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But that's us in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, Thank you for uh, letting us uh, and listening audience get that bit of information. Um, I I, I see that you you, uh, expressed helping people and individuals that want to do business or have ideas or, you know, different ventures that they might want to um, embark on touching and tapping into their personal gifts. Can you elaborate on that? How that component uh, is the engine or to start the process? It definitely does. Because if you don't know thyself, how can I help you? If you don't know where you want to go with your dream, your vision, your passion, that's yours. You own that. I can't get into your head. So what we do is we, we, we do an assessment through a, ver- a series of conversations with you, getting to know you, talk to you. We're able to ask you the right questions to pull it out of you. Because some people really, um, they may know, but you ever know something and then it's hard to find the right words? to describe what you're thinking or feeling or what you want. Yes. So that's what we do. We have those engaging conversations really, really from, um, and, and actually from a personal level, a lot of times a logo has a sentiment attachment to it. In fact, we encourage people, when you create a branding, that has to be some kind of personal connection to who you are and what your company Your company is a reflection of you. And then you have that extension. What are your products and services now? So it all starts with that umbrella. What's your vision, your mission? What do you want to, what do you want to do? And usually I'll even say that. What is your ideal situation to get up every day? It's not going to work when you love what you do. So we all know that. But I say, what's your ideal situation that you wake up every day and you got to work on? What do you want that to be? And then once we help them identify, we help them find even the words, it really brings a lot of clarity to them and us, of course. And then we're able to find, you know, suggest strategies and what direction you go after that. And I want to transition and uh, allow you to elaborate and talk about 
the gallery, uh, this Black Expo, that's going to be uh, a gallery with a meet and greet on uh, July 30th, 2016 at the uh, New York Black Expo, which is the New York Black Expo, excuse me. I want you to kind of elaborate and talk about the climate that we're in now when we're talking about, uh, you know, we have police brutality, we have some inequities within the justice system and how this ties in when you're talking about economics, the expo, uh, we have this new um, thing. It's not new, but it's, 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 it's coming up with different uh, people. We have a, a relationship well, let's buy Black 365, and there's other uh, other groups out there that are pushing, um, unifying and and utilizing our dollar with people who look like us and have an interest in bettering uh, our families, our, our children, and our communities. And I just want you to try to tie in uh, what's going on in this expo, how that can help alleviate some problems and also help as a buffer for us to come together. Loaded question. Well, not really even a question, but let me tell you why. Because what's currently happening, I would, I, I would just want one elderly person that was in that era. Okay, let me start here. The Black Expo started back in the 1800s, first of all, okay? And the very first one was put together. Where is my note? Because I don't want to missay anybody's name. 1895. In Atlanta, and I'm reading this from my history. Now, now, as I, I'll let you know when I'm reading something because I did a lot of research and I put things, you know, cut and paste and put it together. So I'll give the accolades where it goes, that it's not coming from my mouth. I'm just reading it. I'm reading this. It said the first black expo geared towards African Americans was held in 1895 in Atlanta to help further educate Americans on African-American accomplishments. Key word, accomplishments. Don't forget that. Even though many African-Americans freed and otherwise were, cre uh, were already uh, credited with numerous inventions and techno technology, technology advancements, which helped to modernize the country during the years of slavery and for the three decades after, but it was in 19 1895 that when Atlanta hosted the Cotton State and International Exposition, and that's where they had all the services and products of all the many African-American entrepreneurs in America were showcased. So that one paragraph alone encompasses the history, uh, the history of the Black Expo. Now, why I say keep in mind the accomplishments, the purpose has been carried on, in, in, in my opinion, from what I see. I obviously haven't been to all the expos, you know, but from what I see, they have carried on the tradition of giving businesses an opportunity, whether that's you're an author, whether you're in the civic field, or whether you're retail. They do give that uh, African-American community the opportunity to advance their business, showcase your business. What are you doing in the community? Ultimately, offering your products and services to increase your business. And, but it's all about meeting people. So I think that has been carried on. Now, if you fast forward, <clears throat> excuse me, and you look at all the different expos that are going on in different areas, 
some people are doing, because each one is run, you know, by its own coordinator or president, you have some that run for a weekend. You have some that are just the full day. You have some that are a week long. I mean, I saw one. I can't remember where it was, but they had a week-long celebration. One that stuck out in my mind was in Indianapolis, and they just had theirs, uh, and it was a weekend full, and they incorporated live concerts and, you know, made it fun. It was held at the American Legion, the mall, and they had two big concerts. But it was all one long weekend with tens of thousands of people just celebrating the African-American culture. So I don't think there's anything wrong with adding a little bit of fun while you're educating. But one of the things that touched me is they said, and now this is what I'm going to read from the article I read. Some say with racial tension high, this is a good time to bring the community together. Activities for Expo attendees ranged from health and job fairs to a youth leadership summit for black teens from across the state. I loved that. I loved that. Because not only did they include other states, power comes in numbers. Power comes in numbers. So they brought all the states together. They brought our youth our youth, our youth, our youth. We, we say it often. Our youth are future leaders. But what are we teaching our future leaders? What are our future leaders seeing? I think now when you tie into what's going on, I got my own personal feelings to a lot of it. It's A lot of it is not new to me. I think sometimes some of the comments that I'm reading on social media is like people are acting like it's new to them not new to me, not new. I don't know if, if that's because I happen to be fortunate to be raised in a family where my parents made sure we knew about our culture and our history. My father especially, he didn't take that as no joke. And there's four girls and two boys, and the two boys were the youngest. So he was with us four girls. And I can remember many times that he would get frustrated with us because we weren't paying attention to some of his lessons, you know, he would be trying to tell us about things, and we'd listen, but we didn't really, really, really listen. And that's because they were able to provide us a privileged life. I think a lot of that had to do with it. My parents worked hard, worked hard. Just retired recently, on their jobs 40, 40 years, both of them, 40 years or more. So they worked hard, but they made it their business. My mother even made my father uh, 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 his little downtown uh, downtime room. Af- we used to call it the African room. <laughs> she had gotten him spears, real spears. I mean, you looked like you were going into the jungle. And it was all authentic pieces. And I'll never forget when I was old enough, we were at the mall and she bought this elephant figure. She must have paid like $300 for it. We were all like, ma. She says, it's important to your father. You know, it's important. And I didn't know, and I know my sisters didn't really tie into how the elephant ties into our African culture. Elephants Mm -hmm. are a very, very symbolic something, a precious something. So um, I think what, and to bring it back, is I think it's important that we have to focus on what this is all about. We, there's so many things that are out of our control. 
So I think we have to approach things as what do you have that you do have control over? And it comes to mind, again, I'm I'm very proud of my parents, uh, and I'm almost 50, and I still talk about them like, you know, I hold them on a pedestal. Uh, They're not perfect, but, you know, but it comes to mind what he said is you always have to remember they could take your building, they could take your book, but they can't take your brain. What you do in your space, make sure you study it to retain it. Because I can teach my children. They can, they can make us have to run to the forest. And the things that my parents impressed on my mind, I impressed on my children, and I hope they impress on their children. But there were survival things in those lessons. And at the time, you didn't see it. But as you get older and then you get in this mess that we're in, there are so many things that come to mind that they taught us. So, Sister Carolyn, um, based on what you said, and and I really appreciate the fact that you're talking about your uh, parents, because I I, I believe and I see this a lot. I see this in my family and with other families that when you start smelling yourself, you become – semi-successful, meaning that you're able to have a roof over your head, pay the bills, go on some trips. You think you have made it, but you sometimes some of our folks forget that the struggle and the sacrifices that were made by our, by, by our parents and some things that we don't even really even understand and know because it, it might be too painful or sometimes our parents are ashamed to even talk about the things that they had to do for us. And I appreciate you talking about that because we need, especially in this day and age, the younger folks and generations have to have an understanding of that oral tradition and that lineage and be able to talk about, you know, the mother and father, what they did, the grandparents, the great, great grandparents. I think that's the essence. Now I want to tie this into the, uh, to the black expo. Mm-hmm. Um, there's arts and economic development. And yeah. I, I want to see how you're tying in because I know art is something that um, shows our creative creativity. Art, mm-hmm. I had someone tell me at one time, I never looked at myself as an artist. I could write, I could do different things. He said, everyone's an artist. You just have to, you know, you just have to look at yourself and, and your expression of yourself in this world makes you an artist. It doesn't have to be defined by someone white telling you what art is and what art is not. Everyone is here when you express yourself. When you express yourself, therefore, you are an artist, period. And I know that this is something that's not talked to our children in that type of way, but when I interact with uh, younger folks, that's how I speak to them. If you can't draw, it does not mean that you're not an artist, when you open your mouth and you express yourself, therefore comes your art. And I want you to tie the art, the economic development, and this Black Expo in New York. Well, that's that tangible product I was talking about. We have uh, a booth space. I, I I did start out, Let me first of all, let me make it clear, too. I, I did start out on the team, and uh, I was on the team since March. And then uh, recently I have so much going on and things to that nature that I'm no longer on the team, but I am still an exhibitor. So Mark Jenkins, 
I want to thank him on air because he was good to us exhibitor us on the team by letting us go ahead and get some space. So I thank him for that. Uh, so that got me to thinking, well, what am I going to do in my space in front of all these thousands of people? I didn't necessarily want to do anything where we're just service providing and passing out information. I mean, that's all well and good, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to really take advantage of this time to get in front of get in front of all these people. So that's what happened. I had been working on our first tangible product, which is a walk-through gallery. And I needed it to be something so trailblazing, so innovative, so not on the map, that every event planner out there is going to want to be calling us. Because it's designed to not only be visually appealing to the eye, I want it to be eclectic, eccentric, inviting. So you're, just like when you go into a real gallery, because it's a replica of a brick-and-mortar gallery that we bring to your event. We go according to what your theme is, and then obviously the pieces that are displayed will go according to that theme. It starts out by picking, okay, well, what's going to go on the wall? So we call them the legends. So, again, whatever your topic is, let's say it's flowers, then we would, you know, do our research. I'm research queen of the world. So I would do my research on, uh, I like history, so I like to tie in historical things. So I would say who was the first uh, woman or male, uh, depending, again, on the event, um, flower, horticulture, person that went into business or whatever the theme is. Sometimes the events are educational um, sometimes they are art-based, so we'll go according to that. And then, so we call them our legends. So then I pick artists, and I say to the artists, these are the legends that the images that we want you to put on the wall, not every single one, but this is what uh, you will draw. You reflect, I give them the bio, I give them the artist, I mean the legend, the individual, the bio, the headshot, and I say be creative. I don't care if it's a, I want sculptures. I want such a variety. This one wasn't going to be, this one is going to have more just wall displays. Uh, but going forward, I want to, I want to mix that up. I want sculptures, just like how you're saying. Everybody automatically thinks it's painting. It's not. I want photographers. I want, I had one woman that was going to be a part of the uh, gallery. And when I told her the theme and we're talking and she was like, well, where am I going to I said, I don't know, but it has to tie into African-American culture. And automatically her brain, her creative brain, goes into play. And she's like, oh, how about I take a picture of the Nigerian flowers? Because she liked to take pictures of the flowers, nature. That was her John Eyre. And I said, perfect. So I don't know it all. I know my specialty. I know my strengths and weaknesses. So I ask for help. When I tell, all I could do is tell you what the theme is. And I'm, help, I'm looking to you to make the gallery what it should do. So the bottom line is the gallery is, is going to make your event pop. It's just going to make it engaging. But the flip side is, you know how you go to a gallery or a museum, and next to the image you'll see a little um, plaque or, or, or something in a frame that will describe the, the, the picture or the artist, the history of something. I want it to reflect that. So that's where the education piece is coming. So as you're walking through our gallery and you're checking out the pictures, we're going to have curators that will be engaging in conversation with you. 
So it's a great way to open up dialogue, to get people's opinion and, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and then the third component, which makes us so unique, is also within the gallery, we do things to help gather contact information. A lot of times when you go to an event, the what is the basic thing that you see? You're signing in a registration when you come in. Sometimes people will add their email. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes the registration list has an email slot. Sometimes it doesn't. So we make sure, we make it our business that we're doing a variety of little different things. And I can't tell all my tips, but I know how to engage that and how to pull that out of people. And I can tell you the secret is relationship building. So when we're talking to people and engaging them, they're kind of letting their hair down. They're enjoying the art. We're talking about history. They're feeling enlightened. I'm feeling enlightened because you'd be surprised how many times that you learn from those that you're talking to. So now I'm going to say, hey, you didn't put, you know, did you submit your registration? Did you submit your email? Or is there a way that I can contact you and we have a special going on? So maybe what they didn't do at the registration door, they'll do with us. So that's the three components to it. But I want to add, I know I got lengthy on that, but I want to clo- I, I want to end that part of it with saying I am so, so honored and full of gratitude to say that Carl Kanai, the urban fashion designer, is, has agreed to be a part of the gallery. And he has such a beautiful spirit. You know, the closer we're getting in the communications back and forth about with the planning process, he'll come back with an idea of how to engage the audience. He wants to mix and, 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 and say hello to the people. He wants to say a few words to them. He wants to empower, inspire people. When I did my history, why I even reached out to Carl, when I did my research, I found out that he had started, and, and if you don't know, you might want to relook Carl up because there was a lot of things I read I did not know about that man. And I said, what a humble man he is. So it's evident that he wasn't worried about being in the spotlight, that he went and he did his passion. It just so happened it also made a million. So, but what he said was he, the black expos were a very integral part to his success. In the beginning, he used to go to the Black Expo and have be an exhibitor. And he said he knew it wasn't always about what he was going to make in sales. It was the people's reaction and the network building when they found out that he was a black-owned business. And it just went from there. And, of course, he ended up having a great sale. <laughs> Fortunate man. Uh, one, <laughs> one sale, about a $300,000 sale, but uh, to a store chain, I think it was. Don't quote me on that part. Um, but he's going to be a part of it. So I felt that sentiment and me talking to, to his team and stuff and hearing this, it was, it was almost like a second nature thing for him. Like he wants to give back. I also read how he gives back still to this day to the youth and he'll go to schools or he, I I think I read somewhere he went to a hospital, but I, I know for sure it was, he went to a school to talk to the youth, to encourage them and inspire them. So he will be there, and trust and believe. I even had to tell him, he said, well, I want to make sure it's organized, but he, you know, he wants to sign and take pictures and meet and greet the people and walk around. I'm like, okay, we're going to do it in an organized way, though. Okay. Uh, so great, this is great. fun. We're going, to, we're going to transition for a minute, okay, take a big ahead. break, 
And then after the break, we'll come back and we'll allow you to uh, continue telling the people, the listening audience, about the expo that's going to be the gallery meet and greet that's going to be on July 30th, uh, 2016 in New York. And we'll let we'll let you uh, give the address and all those details out also. Gotcha. Thank you. We'll be right back. tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services if, when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. The economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never find, you can't open up a black store in a white community. White man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He's in, he got sense enough to look out for himself. And you, you who don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man, the white man is too intelligent to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community. But you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community. Control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses uh, under the pretext that you want to integrate. No, you're out of your mind. The political, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community uh, in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer, the community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled and misguided 
are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man. The man is becoming richer and richer, and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to, com to complain about poor housing in a run-down community. Why, you run it down yourself when you take it down. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action. with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop to get that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name others, American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to pool it. Children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. And so as a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed test milk. Tell them not to buy what is all the bread, Wonder Bread. And what is all the bread come to Jesse? Tell them not to buy hearts bread. As Jesse Jackson has said, up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And we're joined in conversation this evening with Ms. Carolyn Hall. Ms. Carolyn Hall is one of the organizers for Black Expo 2016 in New York City. And uh, she's sharing with us some of the details on what's going on. Uh, Ms. Hall, before we get back to any questions, and if you want to be involved in the conversation, you can dial 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. Ms. Hall, give out the dates 
and everything, the admission for the expo, anything uh, the listening audience needs to know. And then we'll, we'll, we'll recap it again before you leave. Absolutely. It's this coming Saturday, the 30th, at the Times Square Sheraton Hotel. The doors open up at 10, and then it closes down at 8. It's a variety of the exhibitors, some, a little bit of live entertainment, a little bit of professional speakers will be on the stage, um, as well as I believe Carl is still going to be on the stage for a couple of minutes saying a few words. And then we also have uh, an award ceremony where Mark Jenkins wanted to honor some black businesses in the, um, I don't know if it's only in New York area, I believe it's centered around that, though. And uh, I recall the magazine. There's a magazine that Mark will be launching and announcing. Um, And then there is also, I believe, the Chamber of Commerce. I know that Mark is doing something with trying to start a uh, a Chamber of Commerce. You can't quote me on that. I know if it's not going to be announced at this event, I know it's coming soon. So it'll be a great atmosphere. And as I was listening to the commercial, it it brought me back to what you had asked is, how do you tie that into what's going on? Uh, I got so excited and got veered off about Carl and the gallery being being a feature in the gallery. And we also have Salma, best-selling author, Salma Arzu Brown, who is the author of Bad Hair Does Not Exist. And I'll talk about her when we open that part up again, because that ties into what some of the display work will be. She is uh, Garifuni, Garifuna, uh, descent, Honduras. So it's the Afro-Latino culture. So we're going to be celebrating the West and Central parts of Africa in some of the display work. But what I wanted to, you know, he jarred it, and you had even said it. How does that tie into what's going on now? And I had talked about how we need to be the leadership and tying in the kids being involved. But everything that, the excitement that you heard me talking about, all these exhibitors that are going to be here, all the uh, uh, excitement everybody's feeling is a positive tip. It's all on a positive tip because it's about showcasing what you're doing in your daily life, and that's being in business. So we can't find the sun in the gloom. It's a personal choice. Some of the reaction to the tragedy that's going on, and and I don't even know if tragedy gives it enough justice. We know that the sun comes out. So I would encourage people to focus on the positive. What are you going to do? to keep the positive, to keep the unity, because if, if, if you got a group of negative folks pumping each other up, then you're going to have violence. You're going to have violence, because everybody's going to be mad. You want to go beat somebody up because you're pissed off. We need to calm that right down, because just like a gunfire, all them innocent kids in the playground, because the two gangs are fighting, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of innocent bystanders. And then it goes back to the black-on-black crime. So it's a big trickle effect. So we can't allow this negative crap 
an injustice to bring us in a space where we don't stay focused. And you got to build your brother. you got to build your sister because power comes in numbers. So I'm not trying to be with that crew that wants to stay pissed off. I want to be with that crew that can be pissed off and do something about it in a positive way to make the change because change can still come. It's a challenge. It's a struggle, and it's only a few, you know, but that's okay because I want to be a part of that few and do my part in my own little world. So in my little gallery, in my little space as an exhibitor, I'm going to do my part, and I think a lot of that has to come with cultural pride. Where's our pride? Where's your pride? Sister Hall, let me let me ask you a question. Um, because you mentioned the uh, gave us an overview of the history of the Black Expo, and it's, it's over a hundred years. Is there any um, records kept of the participation of certain cities, certain areas? in the Black Expo uh, that people have gotten involved in businesses? Are there any of those type of records kept? And the reason I'm asking you that, well, I'll let you answer that question, and I'll give you the reason. No, tell me tell me why, because my answer is Google. I got my research with Google is where it started. So it's as easy as Google it. History well, of Black Expo. But go ahead, what's your... What, well, the what, reason I'm asking, because uh, I, I know that it's a mindset change that our people really need, especially at this point, because... Years ago, when our people came up from down south doing the, what they considered the Great Migration, our people came up for jobs. They didn't come up to go into business. Uh, the overwhelming majority of black folks came up here to get a job or a decent job where they could take care of their families. And that mindset really hasn't changed. Um, you know what? I can hold my questions because uh, let's get this caller involved. 804 Air okay. Code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? 804? 804? I think we lost it. We still, you still there, Sister Hall? I am. Oh, good. I think we lost that call. I guess they'll call back. Hopefully he calls back. Yeah. Or he or she. Well, the reason I asked that question is because when our people came up during that period of what they considered a great migration, we came up for jobs. And that mindset really hasn't changed among our people. Uh, if our fathers or grandfathers... Uh, had a decent job they encouraged us to get a good job but we can see now that that environment for having a good job and staying on it for 30 years or 40 years and retiring with the gold watch that that those times almost gone away with high button shoes so it's really incumbent for our people to really get in the mindset of going into business for themselves but that takes for some of our people it takes a risk because they don't see themselves as stepping out of that comfort zone of having a job. And if they give up their job, they might not be able to get another one. Talk about uh, uh, the way you kind of deal with that mindset. You, you, you know, you tapped into it when you said that uh, CL3 encourages three things. That you, they encourage, they inspire, and motivate. And that's one thing that our children are not taught in a lot of these educational institutions. And, uh, you know, they're not encouraged, they're not motivated, and they definitely don't inspire them to be anything. So it, it's almost a re-educational uh, aspect with the adults and children. So so talk about that from that point of perspective where our people really need to develop a new mindset because the days of getting a job and retiring for 30 years is gone. Well, first thing I want to say before I forget 
is you can still try to build, create a business and build it if you have to still punch in a secular job, a nine-to-five job. Okay. That's number one. So you have to set, you have to know what you want to do, and if you want to start a business, you can. So that's what I would say to that person. But then, as you're saying, the reality is something you have to pay attention to. So then I would suggest that person network and associate with people that can empower them to do just that. Because you have to learn how to balance, right? Because if I have to still, which I think every business owner that you may talk to, there's been a time or two that they've had to work a nine-to-five. Okay. while they're building their business. So you can't tell me it can't be done. See, I wouldn't buy that from them. Okay. What I would say is let me work with you. On, you might need some assistance on how to have some time management and balancing that because then you have to take into consideration your family. You're managing your family and then just, we all know, everyday life. So it will be a challenge. That's why everybody's not a business owner. It's not an easy thing to do. Okay. And those that say, oh, I want to own a business, they're out of business real quick because they don't want to do the work. <laughs> so now let me recircle. Did you notice how when you read the, uh, and, and I'm going to share that too. I was looking for the website while you were talking when you asked me that <clears throat> to where I got this information about the history. But one thing that touched me is it started with a group of prominent African-American men, the Expo. So, yes, those prominent men obviously were in business and had done something to become prominent, right? That started with a core group of leaders. Those leaders took it and made it their mission, made it their job to empower that general worker or laborer whether that meant come on and work for my company and give them advancement when you get promotions, you know, is because it's based off of your work performance. So that's even a form of empowerment. I've even been known to say if you choose to work at, uh, and, and no disrespect at all to anybody, but if you choose to work at McDonald's, I'm going to push you and encourage you to become a supervisor at McDonald's. So don't get caught up in what your neighbor is doing. This is your life, your, your, your footprint, what you do. So you've got to make uh, the best of what you're given. And if I can hear stories about people that are in the most horrific situations and end up going to college or end up starting a business or end up getting a good job, forget even starting a business, then that means you can do it. So when I see, and we, and we can talk about probably millions of people that have been in, in difficult, challenging situations that have overcome that to achieve something very great and grand. And it doesn't always include being a business owner. But it's that you talk about mindset. There's nothing more powerful than when you feel good. You build your confidence. You build your step, your step. You step, literally the steps you take become more proud. You know, your your chest starts sticking out, your head is up. You start waking up and showering and getting ready with singing, ready to go to work. 
too many times we're humdrumming, dragging, don't want to go to work because you hate what you're doing. Well, if you hate what you're doing, then what are you, what are you doing about it? If you have to be there, then you do what you have to do. You do what you have to do. But it doesn't mean that you can't be making plans for something else. And then associate yourself with people that can help you make those plans, dreams, and visions become a reality. So back then, Booker T. Washington, Bishop W.J. Gaines of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and other highly respected citizens in Atlanta came together at a table. And they discussed how to include the African American in the exposition. So it didn't say they went to include business owners. It said they went to just include the community. Mm-hmm. It starts as simple as that. Because you can't tell me, the more you're around these people that are being successful and doing their doggone thing and happy about it every day, that's going to rub off on you somewhere, somehow. So that's my take on that. And then that even ties into the creative expression. I love what was said earlier. People automatically uh, relate creative expression with painting a picture. There's so many different varieties, but personal creative expression is just that. How do you personally create your expression? And then now let's go even to tie that into the current situation. Because one of my pet peeves is when somebody has something to say, what's wrong? but doesn't have a suggestion of what might fix that or what do you do about it or a solution. And it might not be a full-blown solution, but an idea. Or come at me and say, well, I don't know necessarily what the solution is, but, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it this way, but maybe we should do it this way, or maybe we should try that. That is opening up the dialogue for further discussion, and it's a start, and you have to start somewhere. So whatever... If, if my way of contributing is to trigger certain things in your brain so that you go back in the mirror and ask, what are my gifts? What do I like to do? That's what I ask people, too. What do you like to do? You'd be surprised how many people don't even know what they like to do. I guess some people might call it a hobby. A hobby is something you know what you like to do and you do it often or you do it in your free time. I want to get even deeper than that. I want to know what do you like to do. And then you can decide if you want to make it a hobby or if you want to make it a career. And the last, uh, I guess the last five minutes of our segment, um, Sister Hall, talk about, um, you know, the people will come up next week and they'll, they'll see the galleries, they'll see the participants, and they'll, uh, yeah. they'll look at the I mean, exhibitions. But tell our people the importance of uh, funneling, funneling money back into uh, the uh, business owners and, as, you know, as consumers. To either get involved in business or to funnel money back to the businesses. Extremely, because uh, that's another thing. And I and, and I have to be careful when I talk about it because I'm very direct, you know, in my words. So I have to be careful and be mindful. But I, 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 I have a problem when I hear somebody talking about, I don't have any money, I don't have any money, I don't have any money. But yet you got $500 phones, you have $200 sneakers, you you have money, obviously, unless you stole it. But where did you buy it? You don't have to go to a black business to buy everything in your house. I wouldn't even advocate that. I wouldn't even say that. That's unrealistic. 
but I don't think it hurts that when you have a, a new business and you find out that it might be your culture, and we can even take this outside of the realm of our own culture. I think it's just about cultural pride. Uh, you know, different cultures. Take the Latino uh, culture, just for example. And, and, and what do they do? They service the little corner stores, right? They, they service a store when it's a new one in town. Uh, uh, in Asian, I mean, we can go down the line. So I think it doesn't hurt to make a conscious effort to once in a while make a conscious decision to shop in the store of your culture. And if you don't, aren't able to do that on a daily basis, because I know I run to stop and shop, so I won't even try, you know. But uh, when i got to get groceries real quick, I do. So I'm not looking for the black grocery store. I might not even, I don't have any around here in my area, but that's <laughs> not my point. My point is, when you do have things like this black expo, what's your excuse now? You had money to spend everywhere else but you mean you don't have any money to come and support these businesses in your cultural, uh, in your culture. So there are some, okay, time is going. Definitely. Oh, you know, and, and when I was working on the team, let me tell you something. I built such great relationships. I have met some wonderful, wonderful people virtually, and we literally are so excited about being able to meet each other in face to face because we know that there's going to be some funneling back to each other. So again, it goes back to finding that network. Find that core of people that you rub to because you have to have a synergy. That's my favorite word. you got to have a synergy. So find the one that you have a synergy with and every once in a while go ahead and buy it. There is a um, and the other thing is you know when I was telling you about the other expo that had all those states come together I do my research and I found there's a company that has air fresheners that's doing extremely well extremely well. It's called True Breeze. B-R-E-E-Z as in zebra E dot com. Actually, it's True Breeze Sense. S-C-E-N-T-S dot com. Check them out. He's offered to sponsor the gallery. He's out in Florida, but it's a a black-owned business, and it has uh, a healthy, I want to say organic but it's air freshener for your home, for your cars, and everything else. So I make—I I, I just personally make it my business to get to know businesses, and then I see what rubs well or fits within the matrix of the projects that I'm working on. But at the Expo, we got some great people. We have shifty people. They're doing wonderful things. He's one of the biggest promoters out of all the exhibitors and has been from day one, Mr. Derek Scott. Uh, we have Soma Arzu Brown. I mentioned her. We have a lot of health conscious, uh, not a lot, actually, because Mark wanted to make sure it wasn't too highly competitive of two, you know, two of the same companies. Uh, we have authors, Anna Bella. She wrote her first book. So there's new people, and then there's people that are seasoned. We have the New York State of the Department of Corrections will be there. So the tickets right now, actually... If you go to www.NewYorkBlackExpo.com, click on the ticket tab, and it'll take you over to where you can buy tickets. They're on sale, two for 25 because normally they're 25 each. Okay. So he's running that. Mark is running that all the way until the end of the month, the 29th. 
so it would be a good time. Um, he has a fitness person that's going to be a speaker. I don't know her, so I can't speak on what she, you know, does. I know what I see, <laughs> but it'll it'll be a good opportunity, if nothing else. And I want people. I want to encourage people. Don't worry about if if you can't buy something from everybody's table, because I don't always have the money that I want to spend when I go shopping. That's why it's called window shopping. But it's about awareness. Because when you do get those dollars in your hand and you go to buy those $200 sneakers, put $20 aside and go to that store that you met at the expo. Before you leave, let's, uh, 804 area code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? 804? 804 area code. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Did you have a question for our guest? No. Not at all. Okay. Listening. All right. Thank you. You're uh, welcome. Sister Hall, uh, yes. give us any more details before we uh, we uh, wind up the segment. And Brother Ed? Well, the only thing I want to say is when you come to our booth, uh, Carl will, you know, he has some great little things that he wants to do. We have, um, I'm glad to say, I want to give a shout out to a community organization that is doing uh, wonderful things with the kids in the Brooklyn and Bronx area. Uh, Bronx, yeah, and she is in the Brooklyn area, too. It's called With Love New York City and Associates. But, they're, uh, you know, on the social pages is With Love NYC. And Brittany Ford is the founder of that nonprofit. And I, I take my hats off to her. She's a young woman, and she is doing her doggone thing. And she is one of the most active. I've seen organizations and have a nonprofit for quite some years, and I've never seen them do as much hands-on. Brittany was talking about how they were at the beach the other day with the kids. So she's very, very, it's very important to her to empower the mom. She has a lot of focus on the, empowering the woman, uh, that mom. So because if the mom is empowered, then she's going to empower her child. But she does a lot with the children, and she has a photo shoot that day. She has a, her own campaign uh, about talking about the kids, you are beautiful, you are our future, you mean something. And then they hold up the sign, and then they take a picture. So they're going to be making a couple of stops in New York, and one of their last stops will be at our gallery booth space, and Carl's going to take pictures with the kids, you know, so they'll be able to hold the sign. And Salma is going to be doing a book reading for the kids. Now, that book reading is open to any other organizations out there. If you service children, please call me, because I'd love to have a room full of kids that Soma could read to, and she's giving out a couple of books there, too, signed copies. Bad hair does not exist, and the message in that book is a whole other conversation. Well, Carolyn, I appreciate all the information about the Black Expo that's going to be in New York uh, this Saturday coming up. Um, please give out your agency's uh, website, uh, any contact information, email for you. So if anyone that's in the listening audience uh, has a business, wants to start a business, and they want to uh, connect with you for you to help shape and uh, uh, draw out the best in them, uh, they'll have your information. 
Absolutely. And I all, uh, you just jarred my memory. In the gallery, I have a couple of spaces. I, I told you I want a variety up in there. I have a couple of openings. If there's any artist out there, uh, again, I want to keep it as, as, as inviting and eclectic. So don't think that it won't be accepted. Give us a call because I have a couple of spots for your work, your creative pieces to be included in the gallery, to be displayed, okay? My number is 203-565-6170. My website, www.c as in Charlie, L as in Larry, the number three, agency.com. So cl3agency.com. 203-565-6170. And then go get those tickets on sale, www.newyorkspelledoutblackexpo.com. I want to thank you for being with us. And talk oh, no, I thank you guys. <laughs> I had a good time. Thank you for sitting back and letting me run my mouth. I appreciate that. I got a lot of information out there. So if anybody has a question and they... You know, I talk too fast. Please call me. <laughs> Thank you for your information. We'll Thank call you, Sister Carolyn. You have a wonderful night. You guys as well. All right. Take care. We'll be right back. tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. What is in one million brothers and sisters who are tired of the same old rhetoric, the same old leaders, the same old ways of dealing with political and economic empowerment? 
you realize that nobody's going to save black people but us, if you understand that no existing political party prioritizes the best interests of African Americans as a collective, if you believe that leadership is as leadership does, and this means that the best leaders for the black collective must come from the ranks of those who place and hold the best interests of black people foremost and uttermost, if you understand that black people must develop the mindset and the will to finance their own racial uplift organizational efforts, then get involved with one million conscious black voters and contributors. The movement is now. Go to www.iamoneofthemillion.com. That's www.iamoneofthemillion.com. It is now commonly recognized that white people do more drugs than blacks and Hispanics, but go to jail for it far less often. White kids also smoke and drink more than black kids, which most people would assume should correlate with youthful rebellion or rowdiness. But it's the black kids that are expelled from school at far higher rates than those hard-smoking, booze-swilling whites. What the numbers are really telling us is that the way black people actually behave is not nearly as important as the way the state intervenes in black people's lives. Crime statistics do not measure actual crime. They measure arrests and convictions. In that sense, crime statistics are actually measurements of the activities of police, prosecutors, and judges. Black people are simply the objects that are being acted upon by the criminal justice system. Now, this doesn't mean that black folks don't engage in their share of crime. It simply means you can't measure the prevalence of crime or antisocial behavior in the black community by arrest and conviction statistics or by expulsions from school. Longitudinal studies are valuable sociological tools because they keep track of groups of people over a period of years, even decades, rather than just presenting a snapshot of the human subjects. This month, the American Journal of Public Health published the results of a longitudinal study of nearly 2,000 young people who passed through the intake facility at the Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center in Chicago, Illinois, between November 1995 and June 1998. Researchers interviewed the juveniles about their substance use disorders, or SUDs in the jargon of the profession. At intervals over a period of 12 years, the researchers caught up with their subjects and debriefed them on their use of alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, hallucinogens or PCP, opiates, amphetamines, and other drugs. They found that not only were the white former juvenile detainees more likely to use drugs as they got older, their use of cocaine was 30 times higher than among the African Americans in the study. Hispanics were 20 times more likely to get coked up than blacks, and whites were 50 times more likely than blacks to be abusing opiates. These are extreme figures, showing a disparity in drug abuse behavior between blacks and whites so huge it could not possibly reflect the different ethnic groups' behavior in society at large. White people as a group do not do 30 times more cocaine than blacks.
However, white kids that wind up getting caught by Chicago area police and sent to the juvenile detention center represent the most troubled cohort of their age and race. Even white skin privilege could not save them from arrest. They were the most doped up of their young white cohort, and they stayed that way as they got older. Whereas the black kids that were passing through the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center were much more ordinary, because picking up black children and throwing them in jail is quite an ordinary thing for cops to do. The study does not shed much light on race and drugs, but it does reveal a lot about race and the criminal justice system. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. On the web, go to blackagendareport.com. Welcome back. Time for an awakening, and I want to thank our first guest, Miss <clears throat> Carolyn Hall, <clears throat> one of the organizers for Black Expo New York. It'll be in New York City next weekend. Uh, she gave a website where you can get discounted tickets. Uh, I hope some of our listeners in the New York area and some of the cities close, uh, Boston, Philadelphia, can take a trip up there, make it a weekend, and, and go visit the expo and get involved. Start recycling our dollars, practicing cooperative economics. That's the only thing that's going to get our people out of the condition that we find ourselves in. We're going to transition to the next part of our program with our special guest, Pan-Africanist playwright and the U.S. correspondent to the Herald, that's Zimbabwe's national newspaper. Brother Obi Igbona Jr. is with us. Brother Obi, how are you, sir? Good evening. Um, I don't know what's so special about me, but nevertheless, I'm honored. You're special. I'm honored to be on your show. How are you? A special guest, brother. <laughs> Brother Obi, how you doing? How you doing, my brother? How, how are you? <laughs> you are special, my brother. I got a, I got a question. I, I, you know what? Let me start this question off real quick, Elliot. Go ahead. And uh, brother Obi, there's a lot of things yep. going on in DC, and you know, you and I have talked off air, but I just want to ask this question on air. You can answer it if you choose to. If you're mute, I understand. Okay. Uh, all the things that you do, that you do with your organization. You have a legacy, uh, a familiar legacy through your father. You're continuing on the works. Um, you network, you're serious, and you're getting things done. I want to know why the people in D.C., I'm not hearing you on radio programs. I'm not seeing you being invited to talk. I've been to events. I listen to uh, D.C. radio. From Philadelphia, uh-huh. and I'm and and I don't see you anywhere in the mix. Is that is that by design? Is that by choice? Have you stepped on anybody's toes? What's the uh-huh. problem? What's the case? Um. Wow. Um. No. It's. I. Whenever. Well, let me just say this much. Um. It's deliberate on our part from this vantage point. The only time you're going to hear us on the radio, um, probably four times a year, um, and it's primarily because um, it's a choice on our part. If we're giving updates about what's going on in Zimbabwe because of my capacity as the U.S. correspondent to the Herald, the national newspaper of the country, I'll discuss that. 
because that represents work that we've been doing for the last uh, 14 years. I've been working um, on the issue of Zimbabwe for 14 years. I've only been the U.S. correspondent to the Herald for eight. But I'm also the external relations officer to the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association, which um, I was recruited to join that by the former Cuban ambassador to Zimbabwe, Cosme Torres Espinosa, um, because he was the highest ranking Cuban diplomat to be deported um, in the United States when he was the deputy ambassador to the Cuban embassy, then the Cuban intersection. So when I got to Harare 10 years ago, he found, I paid him a surprise visit and he immediately recruited me. I'm also a member of the Josiah Mangama Tongogara Foundation and Trust, which is in honor of the um, leader of the guerrilla war known as the second Chimurenga, Chimurenga meaning revolution in the language of Shona, the national language of Zimbabwe. So if I'm not on discussing those things, if I'm not on discussing um, the Merging Our Experiences Education Project that we have launched, um, if I'm not talking about the plays I've written about Zimbabwe, uh, we've done three. One has been performed about Sally Mugabe, the country's first first lady, President Mugabe's first wife, and we've written two, two more that have yet to be put on, but we've written those. If we're not talking about the Battle Cry for Cuba and Zimbabwe project, which I've had the honor of producing with um, Mutulu Olubala, affectionately known as M1 of the internationally acclaimed hip-hop group Dead Press. If I'm not talking about Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, as we've performed 12 plays in the last five years, um, if I'm not talking about any of the practical things, then I'm not supposed to be anywhere. I'm not supposed to be at these conferences where the majority of conversations are a critique or an assessment, or an analysis, which is primarily by observation. Um, my analysis is going to come from participation. So if I'm not talking about one of the five schools I teach at in D.C., if I'm not talking about the 11 schools that I teach in, in Alabama between Selma and Marion, then uh, there's no need for me to be on radio. There's no need for me to be on television. And there's no need for me to be a guest on uh, any of these shows. We're only on there when we have an update about the work we do from the moment we open our eyes in the morning to the moment we close them at night. Well, <laughs> brother Rich, are you satisfied with that answer, brother? <laughs> That's why we said we have a special guest tonight. Um, I mean, because and and I hope I hope I sincerely answer that, Reg. Because yeah, but I will did, say this did, much: I think that, yeah, I think this is what you're looking for. Um, no, there are looking... two type, and there no, oh. there are two. Let me just say this: okay, there ahead. are two type of there are two type of people getting platforms right now at this historical moment in our community: those who are trying to build a movement sincerely, and those who are trying to build their reputations at the expense of our movement. Sometimes we use the same historical references. Sometimes we use the same lingo. And so when people hear that, they may say, well, how do you distinguish? You have to look at our body of work in the past, in the present, and that will help them anticipate what we're going to do in the future. And the first criteria can be even more simple than that. Are, the, are they engaging in any sustainable organized activity about what they're talking about at that moment, or are they just talking about it because it's politically fashionable at that moment, making a whore out of the issue? Thank you. 
Brother Obi, you know, uh, oh, go ahead. Elliot, no, go ahead. Let me say this to uh, Brother Obi. Uh, we've talked off air, and what you just stated, I appreciate because I think the people who listen to our program, they need to hear, especially the last piece that you gave out. They mm-hmm. need to be able to hear that from someone other than Elliot or myself. Oh, okay. I think they need to be able to hear that from other people. It's not that we, we I, I know I have been uh, critical of uh, of some people and some mm-hmm. movements and some things mm-hmm. that I've seen going on that I think um, is really for the benefit of either a group or an individual, but not really. Right. Is about what they're really talking about because I don't see any I don't see any uh, tangible action or work that's been done either in the past, in the present, mm-hmm. but I see money being collected. All right? oh, okay. I'm just keeping yeah. it. I'm just keeping it just like yeah, you're, you're dealing with something else now. <laughs> all right, all right. No, no, we talking about no, we talking about no, but it goes. I'm just playing, goes, man. I'm just playing. Nothing. I'm just playing. <laughs> but but yeah. but, but mm-hmm. I, I think that the listener audience. They need to hear right. the voices other than us that 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 can um, give that sort of explanation and critique and analysis yeah. just for them to have something to think about. Because I think, well, that, I'll take it a step further, but I'll take it a step further. Um, one of the last conversations I had with M1, I was joking with him, but I was serious, though. I said, you know, RBG needs an older sister and brother. And he's like, what you mean? And I said, well... You know, I would say that that um, concept is very um, appealing to a particular demographic, and I'm going to say between 15 and 35. I said, but for people 35 to about 60, they probably need something else. That's uh, And he said, what, do you, what would you say? And I said, COC. And he said, What's the, what, what does that stand for? I said, contributions over critiques. And the reason that I say that, and I think it speaks to where you're going, because um, – it's it's hilarious when I see like um when President Obama um went to Cuba for example, I saw um I forget the uh, link uh, someone sent me, and it was somebody up there talking about Cuba, and talking about his trip to Cuba, talking about um, giving their assessment of what's going on in the ground in Cuba, and to my knowledge that person had never lifted a fingernail to do anything to get the blockade lifted in Cuba to do anything to link up schools with Cuba, churches with Cuba, people who would like to explore business opportunities, um, artists with Cuba, nothing. But they were dealing with it because it was fashionable. And because this is the information age and our people are hungry for information, especially from an alternative vantage point, we're vulnerable in that regard. So we want to create an atmosphere before people give their critique of an issue, their opinion of an issue. They have to state if they have ever contributed any labor in relationship to that issue. And if they haven't, then they should go and identify the people who have because they know who they are. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned Washington because of the fact that we're not the best organizers in Washington by a long shot. But nobody can deny that we're in a very strategic position. We're in a strategic position because Washington is the HIV-AIDS capital of the United States. Washington is the surveillance capital of the world. Washington is... uh, 
the most treacherous free um, free enterprise driven entity in the world. So it gives, and most people who are dealing with educational issues, health issues, political issues, cultural issues, economic issues, military issues, they pay very close attention to Washington because whatever's being laid out in Washington policy-wise, it may visit them in their immediate areas in the near future. So I get calls, um, email address, messages, Facebook messages, tweets, whatever the case may be, just asking what is going on in Washington, D.C., from people not only in the United States but other parts of the hemisphere and certain parts of Africa. And uh, so it's a challenge to be an organizer in Washington. It's a challenge to serve the masses of our people in Washington. And we just try to do everything we can to live up to that challenge. It's as simple as that. Brother Obi, I'm a bounce around and ask you some questions on dealing with different issues but sure. first i want to um because even though you you know you're a journalist and the uh the correspondent to the herald uh mm. you one of your first loves is is the playwright and uh working mm. with some of our children you attended a the black homeschool um uh, conference down in yeah. atlanta uh yes talk about uh the conference some of the things that you uh because you was you were asked to be involved because of your work. Talk yeah, about some of the um, things I was, that you I was saw invited there. down there. Um, this was my third year in a row. Assistant named Queen Tyus Snowden and Liberated Minds in Atlanta. They've organized that for five years in a row, and I was invited because um, my uh, my boss, my comrade, my big sister, my big sisters, um, Monica Utsi and Jessica De Silva who are the founders of the Sankofa Homeschool Community in Washington, D.C., which is affiliated with the D.C. Southern Chapter, the Southern Chapter of D.C. Mocha Moms, but putting a more nationalist and pan-Africanist twist on it. And it's an incredible program. Um, people can look at it. And um, so through that, I'm the, I've had the honor of being the pan-African history teacher for the last five years. I teach um, two classes, 9- to 12-year-olds and 13 on up. And my oldest student is 16. So through that process is how I got invited to come to um, Atlanta. So last uh, Saturday, I had 45 children that I was working with. And um, what what I do is I just go through, give them an overview of what we do with our children all the time. So one of the things that we've developed is an exercise that shows children teaches children Africa, all the African nations using um, alphabets and numbers. For example, yeah, so I'll just go down the rundown real quickly. So there are two um, African countries that begin with the letter A, four that begin with the letter B, seven that begin with the letter C, two with D, four with E, five with G, one with K, three with L, um, seven with M, three with N, one with R, ten with S, three with T, one with U, and two with Z. And then you give them that, and then you list them in alphabetical order. And if they do that 10 minutes a night, there's no reason why in a 30- to 45-day period they wouldn't be able to stand in front of you, Brother Elliot and Brother Reggie, and give you all African countries in alphabetical order. And we do that with children from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. And um, so that's one of the things we were able to do. The other thing we were able to do is um, just certain exercises. Um, we use certain poems 
to hit certain points home. Um, one of the poems is called Our Home Away From Home, very simple one. I have a lot of brothers, I have a lot of sisters, I have a lot of cousins, I have a lot of uncles, I have a lot of aunties, but we all have the same mother. She's my mother's mother, she's my father's mother, she's my grandparents' mother, she's my great-grandparents' mother, she's my ancestors' mother. The mother that we're talking about is Mother Africa. The mother that we're talking about is Mother Africa. We must defend our mother by standing up for our mother. We must come together in the name of our mother. We all love our mother. We all love our mother. We all love our mother. Then we do another point that shows how the cultural revolution that took place in Africa when we gained political independence, starting with Nkrumah, Osage for Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, how we would change the name that the colonial, um, former colonial master forced on us. Um, we would change it immediately, showing the shaking of the mental shackle. Um, and that point was called No More, No More, and that's a quick one, too. Gold Coast, No More, No More Today, it's Ghana. British Tanganyika, No More, No More Today, it's Tanzania. Northern Rhodesia, No More, No More Today, it's Zambia. Southern Rhodesia, No More, No More Today, it's Zimbabwe. British Nyasaland, No More, No More Today, it's Malawi. Southwest Africa, No More, No More Today, it's Namibia. Upper Volta, No More, No More Today, it's Burkina Faso. Colonial names for African countries, no more, no more. African names for African countries, African names for African people, no more, no more, no more, no more. So we did those two, then we sang some songs with them, and then we focused in on some important numbers that they should know and what's the historical significance of those numbers. So when African children hear the number 55, they'll know that's 55 countries in Africa. When they hear the number 70, they'll know that we live in 70 countries off the continent of Africa, commonly referred to as the diaspora. When they hear the number 125, they'll know that means Africans are in 125 countries all over the world. When they hear the number 140, they'll know that that's the population for Nigeria, which has the largest population of any African nation on our mother continent. When they hear the number 160, that represents the 160 million of us in India. When they hear the number 191, that means the 191 million Africans in the Americas. Because as Malcolm X, speaking for the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad at the time as the national spokesperson of the Nation of Islam, he said we should give the white man back his slave names. Well, we need to up the ante before Barack and Michelle and Sasha and Malia relocate and leave 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we need to send them a gift. And we, need, we, need, we can wrap it up in the prettiest, um, with the prettiest gift paper and bow. But when they open it, it'll be um, some letter or wording that says, you can take back your definition of America. Um, America is North America, South America, Central America, Latin America, the Caribbean, all the way up to Canada. It's the Western Hemisphere. And the reason that's important is because it links us with 190 million Africans all over this hemisphere who were dropped off by what we consider the first form of public transportation. We're talking about none other than the slave ship and the first one that was named after Jesus Christ. Dare I say that on a Sunday? So these, those, are, those were some of the basic exercises that we went over with the children. We sang the song Zimbabwe with them. We sang um, Strange Fruit with them. By, um, we sang... Um, Fire in Soweto, which was sung, made by a Nigerian artist named Sonny Okasin, who made that after the Soweto uprising, as we're sitting here on the 40th anniversary of the Soweto uprising. We showed them the power of the calendar, and we let them know 
that this is 2016. It marks the 70th anniversary of the creation of the Democratic Party of Guinea, led by Akme Sekoutoure, the first political party we established during the anti-colonial struggle in Africa. This is the 50th anniversary of when Kwame Toure and Mukasa Dada popularized the concept black power amongst the 60s generation, but um, which was said before by Richard Wright 12 years earlier when he wrote a book, Black Power, dedicated to Kwame Nkrumah, and first used by Frederick Douglass. This is the 50th anniversary of the second Chimurenga in Zimbabwe when they first took up the armed struggle in Zimbabwe. This is the 40th anniversary of Soweto, as we said before, but this is also the 25th anniversary of the Day of the African Child, which we've been celebrating on the African continent, and they deliberately made it um, June 16th is the date to commemorate Soweto. So, of course, we explained to them the history behind those dates, so we talked to them about the importance of Guinea, the importance of black power, the importance of Soweto, and then they acted out some marches um, we acted out the Soweto uprising um, and the slogans that the youth said that day are down with Africans, viva Azania. If we must do Africans, Vosta must do Zulu. Africans is a Dutch language, a foreign language that was made. The, it was a prerequisite that that's the way they had to talk in the classrooms and all over South Africa. And the youth in Soweto marched protesting that. They could only speak Afrikaans and English. They couldn't speak Nungsa, they couldn't speak Zulu, or they couldn't speak any of the other indigenous dialects and languages in that country. So, of course, we explained that to them. So they reenacted that march. And then we also did some geography with them. So since we sang Zimbabwe, Bob Marley's song, we talked about the three main places that are central in Zimbabwe's history, one being Tanzania, one being Zambia, and one being Mozambique. And those places are important in the lineage and pantheon of Zimbabwe's resistance because those were the three places that the guerrillas went for training. And so since um, Zimbabwe is, Harare is 571 miles from Maputo, the capital of Mozambique. Harare is 248 miles from Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia, and 1,419 miles from Dar es Salaam, the capital of um, Tanzania. And the word miles in Shona is Mamaira. So they were up there marching, uh, Harare to Maputo, 571 Mamaira. Harare to Lusaka, 248 Mamaira. Harare to Dar es Salaam, 1,419 Mamaira. And the word you say in Shona for marching is Kapura. So they were just walk, marching around Kapura, Kapura, Kapura. So those were just some of the things that we did in them in Atlanta last weekend. And then um, I was given the floor on Sunday to make an appeal to all the organizers there on about October 29, 2016, when we're going to be having an all-African children's festival and celebration in D.C., bringing together um, our theater group along with the Farafina um, Khan Academy that does drumming and dancing, with a capoeira group, the Food of Islam students from Muhammad University of Islam are going to be doing their drills. There's going to be some kids who play musical instruments. We're going to have just an evening of children's talents, African children's talents being showcased. But we're asking Africans all over the world to organize activity with children simultaneously with what we do in D.C. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as the interview proceeds. But that's what I was doing in Atlanta. I hope I answered the question, Elliot. Yeah, well, you know, you're talking about teaching methods that uh, 
that should be utilized by a lot of our people. And I'm glad that you at that expo, expo because, I mean, we see what's going on in these cities and public schools failing, our children dropping out. They're not being yeah. reached, and that, that's systematic. We know that. But they're not mm-hmm. being reached by these people that's trying to teach our children. So, uh-huh. I mean, you're talking yeah. about teaching methods that has been successful in reaching our uh-huh. children. But let me. Well, it, I'll, I'll let, I'm going to have to. Um, what we are doing now, I've been criticized by some folks because they're saying people who get a chance to observe it firsthand, they'd like me to video it more. And um, one of the things that's being planned now for me by some comrades of mine is they want me to do something called a pan, the Pan-African Roving Classroom, where I will go out um, from Mondays through Wednesdays all over the United States starting this academic school year, and I'll spend time in classrooms, I'll spend time in uh, juvenile detention centers, I'll spend time in community centers, um, after-school programs, what have you, where we're having this type of engagement with our children using um our history as the engine and the backdrop, if you will, just to show people when our children get quality exposure to their history, what they're capable of producing and how enthusiastic they are when they finally get what's been hidden from them for so long. Or And actually it hasn't been hidden, but it's been distorted. Okay. And one of the things that um, we really need to look at, too, um, the challenge we have is that we have to make our resistance the cornerstone of our narrative. And we're doing that at a moment in history where, let's face it, our history and culture is a multi-billion dollar business. It's a multi-billion dollar business. Some people, you can even see the Zionist Secretary of Treasury, Jack Lew, what he did in, in the tradition of white liberals. He considered it a good gesture to put uh, Amentia, Harriet Tubman, on the back of the $20 bill, Sojourner Truth, as uh, on the back of the $10 bill, and Marian Anderson and Dr. King on the back of the $5 bill. So you take um, Harriet Tubman and do that. You take Sojourner Truth, but you present her as a footnote in the history of the women's suffrage movement next to uh, Lucretia Mott mm-hmm. and uh, Mary Ovington and some of those, and Susan B. Anthony. So she's supposed to be linked to them historically not as a soldier in the struggle to eradicate chattel slavery. And, of course, what happened to Marian Anderson. But the most condescending aspect of that gesture is Africans worked nearly 300 years. For many people, if you ask them what was the worst aspect of chattel slavery, they'll say the forced free labor. And then they're going to put us on currency? So you, you look at that. And then also you look at the fact now um, – when Chuck D. made the song, which all of us love, Fight the Power, one of the lines that stood out was, most of my heroes never appeared in no stamp. But 100 Africans have been on U.S. postage stamps in the last 70 years. Um, Ida B. Wells got a stamp. Paul Robeson and Du Bois, who were convicted of treason, have stamps. Malcolm and Dr. King, who were assassinated by the U.S. government, have stamps. And then, so you can now get the whole collection of African stamps for $25, along with a mint-conditioned stamp of uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Booker T. Washington, and Dr. King. And um, this is this is what they're selling in that regard, or on that end. And then, of course, um, you look at now Dr. King's memorial is the number one tourist attraction in Washington, mm-hmm. before the monument, before the Lincoln and Jefferson Memorial, and Walt Disney 
put up the final $180 million to complete that. You look at the fact that Coretta Scott King and the family sold Dr. King's papers to the Library of Congress for $20 million 15, 16 years ago. And you just take a look at, um, they've been more Nelson Mandela, they've been as many Nelson Mandela movies and Tuskegee Airmen movies as they've been Planet of the Ape movies or Batman movies or Superman movies. They understand. And this is why when we're talking about economic empowerment, people have to be very clear about the dynamic of consumerism. And they have to ask themselves, is the answer us um Con, you know this whole consumer dynamic because they had an expo in Atlanta last Sunday um, that was in addition to the homeschool expo. They had one day dealing with economics and Dr. Claude Anderson was the keynote speaker. But the interesting thing about it, you hear people say we don't support our own businesses, and I'm you know and of course you don't want to antagonize anyone publicly, and you kind of you kind of know what, what they're trying to say, but at the same time we have to be precise because. Um, You'd have a hard time telling Sylvia Soul Food Restaurant in Harlem that it ain't African dollars that's the reason that it's standing. Okay. Now, since gentrification, that might be different. You can't tell Virginia Ali at Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington, D.C. that it wasn't our dollars. Any soul food restaurant. Have you ever had a white barber cut y'all's hair before? <laughs> no. You ever been to a white funeral home before for a funeral? No. No. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that people have to be very, very careful. Now, if they're saying that those dollars have not been utilized for our upliftment, then that is to be understood. But as this is the consumer capital of the world, the United States is, we have to be very careful about that. Because if we go back and do our homework, we have put many soul food restaurant owners, barbershop owners, funeral homes owners, grandchildren and great-grandchildren through college because of our dollars. And if we go back and ask those businesses, how much money have you given the Nation of Islam? How much money have you given the NAACP? How much money have you given the All-African People's Revolutionary Party? How much money have you given to an African independent school? That should be the conversation. Because whenever we talk about these businesses, we don't talk about what those businesses are going to do with the resources that we have. And I know for a fact, being an organizer for the last 26 years, I don't remember any organization I've been part of that has said that these businesses that have flourished have given any significant money back to those organizations at all. So I think that so but it was good to be in that setting and good to be in that surrounding so that we can bring up these type of things and what have you. Uh, Brother Obi, two questions uh, that I want to ask you and, and get your opinion. The one might be a little more difficult to answer than this one. OK, I'll try. Uh, we um, our first guest that we had on was uh, uh, a sister that was in that is involved in the black Expo up in New York City. Uh, mm -hmm. next week is there okay. any um international expos for black folks to help countries that need it more than others now uh, I, what i'm saying is this you've got countries like nigeria and ghana that may mm -hmm. that might have a little more stable economy than some other african mm -hmm. countries but for mm -hmm. example you work with cuba and you do extensive work and you're corresponded with zimbabwe countries mm -hmm. like that that need um, uh, African-American investors uh, either mm -hmm. to get products 
or to, mm-hmm. to learn about different investment opportunities. Is there any international black expo that you're aware of that, are, that exists? Um, actually, um, there are organizations that, that say that um, that's their goal. Um, and we just have to see how that unfolds. But in terms, in the form of an expo, no. But I think that that's something that could be established. I think that um, when you look at, quote-unquote, doing business in Africa, there are a few things that have to be understood immediately off the top. First of all, um, the challenge that you have, um, Brother Elliot and Brother Reginald, is 95% of the governments in Africa are neocolonialist and reactionary governments. And when you say you're investing, the money is going to go into their pockets, and it's definitely not going to go to the people. This is something that we have to really be very creative when we deal with. If you go the humanitarian route and you begin to deal with the NG, then you have to look at the United States Agency for International Development, which, as we have gone from COINTELPRO to OINTELPRO, overt intelligence, the United States Agency for International Development is more dangerous in 2016 than the CIA was in 1966 in 1976, in 1986. So you have to factor that in. They finance sister city. They finance, um, (laughs) they oversee the money that goes to the Corporate Council in Africa, which was created during the Clinton administration, which is supposed to be the instrument that deals with big business. And most so-called African-Americans, they don't do big business. They do small and mid-level. Okay. So the only thing, and then they also finance sister cities. So when you see most U.S. sister city African projects, if it's not a people-to-people type of thing, then that means that you're working with USAID. And then when you look at these NGOs, um, a lot of them, they're Western finance, and they're an extension of the agenda. And then you look at organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy, the National Democratic Institute, the National Endowment for Democracy was created um, by Ronald Reagan in 83. They said they needed a think tank to be able to facilitate regime changes, assassinations, and coups in Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, and Latin America. And then um, the Democrats came with a counter, which Madeleine Albright oversees today called the National Democratic Institute. So when you're talking about an expo for Africa, you have to be able to look at these entities. And, of course, you have to look at the State Department's educational programs in Africa. The State Department has a hip-hop ambassador position now, the same way that they made um, Dizzy Gillespie and Louis Armstrong um, jazz ambassadors. And this is why when we did the Battle Cry for Cuba and Zimbabwe project, we let it be known that this was completely independent. As we're doing this Merging Our Experiences project, um, which is a project where we're doing a timeline to show the parallels in our history with our people throughout the Americas uh, and our people in Southern Africa and other parts of the diaspora to ensure that moving into the future from the elementary level all the way to the university level, that we're no longer teaching about colonialism and slavery as separate episodes in the African experience. And if people wonder why we're starting with that, we don't want to step on the toes of ASCAC which is the Association for the History of Classical African Civilizations, much respected and much loved to them. They're the ones who deal with antiquity, but we want to deal with the modern because we don't want to focus on the antiquity at the expense of ignoring what's going on right now in Africa. So you, and um, the other thing, lastly, is because 
the money that we invest in Africa right now, it's like between 1979 and 2008, that is, nine, the treacherous uh, government of Hosni Mubarak was over Kemet in Egypt, right? So all those tours that Dr. Bairn organized and Ashra Kwesi organized and Anthony Browder organized, that money ended up going into the pockets of the tourism ministry of Hosni Mubarak, who, with the exception of the Zionist State of Israel, got more money from the United States than any government on the planet. So, and when we come back from these countries, because the church sends more people to Africa than anyone, but when we come back from these countries, we need to have a better understanding of the region that that country is in. And I say that because North Africa is the most isolated region because many of us don't like to even pay attention to North Africa because of the Arab population. That's why when Libya was damn near blown off the face of the earth, we didn't say anything or do anything. Western Africa is the most corrupt region, which is where we like to hang out. And Eastern Africa is the most chaotic region. Um, Ethiopia, they say, is on the verge of a civil war tonight. Um, Sudan is divided by the Quran and the Bible. <laughs> Kenya has never been stable. So, I mean, this gives you an idea of what's going on in that region. The only region that's stable is southern Africa. And so these are the things that we have to understand. And then when we come back, whether we are going for spiritual reasons whether we're going for cultural reasons, whether we're going for artistic reasons, whether we're going for economic reasons, we must return back to Babylon invested in the struggle to change U.S. policy on Africa because U.S. policy on Africa is rooted in theft, exploitation, greed, and genocide. You know, the, the reason I asked that question before I moved to the second question was because when we first started the conversation, you was talking to Brother Reg. You mentioned that the Cuban ambassador <clears throat> uh, was in Zimbabwe and, and got you involved. Yeah. And, and I was just thinking about some of these countries that's been on the, ostracized by the United States is mm -hmm. working with one another. So there yeah. are business opportunities. They for, are. For there are business to, opportunities. There are educational opportunities. But once again, then it comes down to the legal piece because – if you're just talking about old-fashioned solidarity and camaraderie, we can be creative. But then what you end up having, Brother Elliot, is hustlers what, and see, liars that, that's what, that's what and, I and, and frauds but that's what who I want end up going to these countries in their most vulnerable moments and trying to get them to give them money to do something that they can't do. And in most cases, that's dangerous on a couple of fronts. Number one, Let's say, like, for example, there are people who have approached um, Zimbabwe talking about um, the, uh, they can help fight the sanctions. If, and if they know that the sanctions have been um, in place since 2001, which is 15 years this year, you mean to tell me that they didn't go and do their homework to find out who was doing that work already, if anybody was doing that work? And if so, what were they doing? And have they looked at the categories? Has there been any uh, work in the medical field? Have we been able to send people there to do uh, doc, doctor work the doctors do, health work? There's people looking at how to maneuver around the sanctions and do investment, work in the artistic area, work in the educational area. And then if they look at that, then they look at the, the, the body of work that people have done, then they have to ask, can they match it? 
because if they're asking the Zimbabwean government for money to do that, bare minimum, they have to match the efforts of people who do it out of love and only do it because they feel historically obligated to do it. And the same thing applies. Um, Aristide, it was said, during his tenure in Haiti, when Haiti was one of the five poorest countries on earth, he was spending more money on consulting than any country on the planet. He he um he had uh he gave global telecom the long distance contract. He set up something called the Aristide Foundation for Democracy. The Kennedys had a piece of him. The, the Black Caucus had a piece of him, and it wasn't helping Haiti at all. But what it was doing was it was setting these people up. You can even look at the tenure of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Some people hung out more in Venezuela than they had their own neighborhoods. They were always over there. Um, get, giving him the impression that they could do something to change U.S. policy on Venezuela. And this is why Cuba is a standout country, because Cuba has never given anyone a nickel, a penny. They say, come with us. Do what we did in Angola when we went without asking for anything and fought with our Angolan sisters and brothers in the bushes in Coito Cunavle for 14 years. Go like we went to Mozambique and fought shoulder to shoulder with Samora Marshall and Free Limo. Come with us like we went into Guinea-Bissau and stood shoulder to shoulder with Emil Cabral. Come do like we do as we send 4,000 doctors to Africa, spread throughout Africa, whether they're fighting Ebola in Liberia or Sierra Leone, whether they're in Zimbabwe, responsible for Zimbabwe having a 97% literacy rate because 30 years ago they brought 3,000 Zimbabwean teachers to the island of youth in Cuba, and those teachers became the backbone of the educational system in Zimbabwe. So they say follow our example, but we will pay you nothing. So we have to get back to that old-fashioned solidarity and camaraderie that's driven by history, driven by integrity, and driven by principle. And if we continue to do that approach, we don't even have to mention the hustlers. We don't even need to mention the pimps. We don't even need to mention the bloodsuckers. But the way we approach the work shows that we are the alternatives to those bastards. Well, listen, I know that you know names of people, but I'll just put it this way. The people you're talking about are people that are supposed to represent black folks, black caucus members that have went to other countries that are predominantly black. And instead of mm -hmm. looking to sincerely help them, they're looking to scam uh -huh. money. Yeah. Okay. I just, I just wanted what, to make it clear for the what, listening but audience. That's what, that's what ne but neocolonialism has many pillars many dimensions and many facets thanks to people like you it gets exposed i was taught by kwame ture and mukasa dada and others expose behavior don't focus on the names because they you know don't give these people more publicity than they deserve i believe if i deal with characteristics dynamics and behavior you Reg and all the people out there listening to you live and will listen to this after it's been recorded, they'll know exactly who we're talking about. We don't have to say any names. The, one other question, uh, Brother Obi. <clears throat> you came, I mean, you were raised, put it this way, when you were young, you've seen your father mm -hmm. active on the continent uh, with a lot of leaders. Some of the leaders were murdered by the U.S. government. Mm. You, you've seen things yourself going on on the continent. You've seen changes on the continent. And you've seen, mm -hmm. 
you've seen how they have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in a roundtable conversation, myself and Brother Rich, a little while ago <clears throat> with some other hosts uh, talking about um, the violence in this country against black folks and what we need to do here to, to counter. Yes, to counteract it. Okay. The, uh-huh. quest, the question I'm asking you is this. The other countries that, that I was speaking of earlier in prefacing this comment or the question mm-hmm. is, is other countries that are part of the European family that have uh, colonialized mm-hmm. or colonized Africa. Mm-hmm. And you, we've seen through history how our people had to deal with these people. Do you see any way different that our people are going to have that are going to have to counteract this violence beside now it's it's a different it's a three-prong approach and when i say three-prong i'll just say it's many prongs Mm -hmm. uh you can get involved with organizations you can march in the streets and you can Mm -hmm. see other things happening like has happened in baton rouge and in dallas yeah what do you uh, give me your opinion on how to make European countries say that we can't do this anymore. I mean, you've seen it. You the way we the way we always have. Go ahead. I mean, the struggle the struggle never stops. We we fight on all fronts. The challenge is now um, just to make sure that people don't condemn a particular tactic because they prefer another one, which has been our struggle the whole time. I mean, just like um, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, Kwame Ture would tell me all the time that um, what he what he learned the most from Dr. King is King never attacked anyone, regardless of all the people who attacked him, because he was so busy with his program. And the people who were usually attacking him, they didn't have a program. And uh, I noticed when I went and studied the Testament of Hope, which everyone should have, which is uh, about 90% of the brother's speeches, King, uh the one person that he voiced his displeasure with was Robert Robert Williams in Monroe, North Carolina, at a time where the Ku Klux Klan had a 15,000-member paramilitary unit there. And Julian Mayfield, the writer, the actor, the organizer, the playwright, um, one of the best, most overlooked um, organizers of that period, him, John Henry Clark, that's right, Dr. John Henry Clark, and the sister May Mallory ran in the summer of 61, ran guns three times to Monroe, North Carolina, so that Robert Williams, who had a military background, could train our people because our people that were marching and protesting in Monroe, North Carolina, they needed to have potato sacks and rice sacks in their windows because the Klan was shooting their windows as a form of intimidation. So they chose to defend themselves. Um, when um, SNCC was banned from Emeritus, Georgia, for after a 13-year-old girl was raped and murdered in Anna B. Hayes, and there was an eruption in Emeritus, Georgia. Dick Gregory was there. He knows about what happened. We, and so when we decided to do Urban Rebellions, 289, between 1965 and 1968, we saw what happened in Baltimore. You see what's happening in Baton Rouge. Some of us you know, are protesting, what have you. As long as we just focus on the issue at hand and don't feel the need to condemn a tactic that we may not be comfortable with, let us just find glory and inspiration in the fact that our resistance is coming full circle 
and it's more beautiful when you see the different facets and dimensions of it. And that's why Malcolm's antidote, by any means necessary, really took full flight because he was just as passionate about what Nkrumah and Lumumba and Sekwetere did in Ghana, the Congo, and Guinea using positive action, strikes, demonstrations, and boycotts, as he was what the Mau Mau and Land and Freedom Army did in Kenya and what Ahmed Bambela and the National Liberation Front did in Algeria, where they fought in armed struggles. So we, and interestingly enough, the leaders who we consider the most revolutionary in African, modern African history, Nkrumah and Sekouture, they were, um, they came to power using strikes, demonstrations, and boycotts. That's what Lumumba did. That's what Gaddafi did. But they were more, but they were more revolutionary than some who liberated the country by gun. So sometimes there are people who will go through the process of armed struggle, but that doesn't mean that they're the most revolutionary. They just utilize the most effective tactic at the time. As long as we understand that those things are tactics and they're not principles, but at the same time, let's be tactically flexible. Let us not feel the need to impose a, a doctrine that says that only one tactic works. And we remember in 1958 at the All-African People's Conference that they had in Ghana where a resolution got passed around, and it said that um, they would support all liberation movements in Africa who were looking to break the shackles of colonialism using positive action. And a young man named France Fanon stood up and said, but what about those of us who are involved in armed struggle and don't have the luxury of using positive action? And then in Krumah, testament to his wisdom and his objectivity, he asked for the resolution to be circled around the room one more time. And then when it was finally presented to the world, it was a resolution that said they would support those who were genuinely committed to the eradication of colonialism, whether they use positive ta action or armed struggle. So that's already been answered. As long as we're guided by our history, we'll be fine. We'll do whatever we need to do. Remember, we um, one of the things that scared them more than anything else was the original Million Man March, um, because not just because two million men assembled in Washington, but because four million Africans stayed put in their cities and organized activities in conjunction with the march. That evoked that evoked the spirit of Lucy Parsons in the 1800s when white folks took to the streets of this country and protested the 14-hour workday. They were working 14 hours a day for $1.25. Plain clothes police threw bricks at the police in uniforms in Chicago. The police shot in the crowd, killed a few, injured several. And the very next year, on May 1st, there would be demonstrations all over the world. Grover Cleveland called a state of emergency inside United States borders, and that's the reason why Labor Day is in September, when the rest of the world celebrates the Day of the Laborer in May. And most people in this country don't even understand why May Day exists and why Labor Day is in September. So I think that um, as long as we use these tactics, and think about it now, if we just decide, and that's the reason we want to have that festival in um, October, and we're asking Africans everywhere to organize something around children because people forget, Brother Elliot, and at the march in Washington. Matter of fact, did y'all know that there was a march in Ghana on the U.S. Embassy simultaneous with the march that was going on in Washington? Maya Angelou was part of it. Julian Mayfield was part of it. Alice Wyndham was part of it. 
Um, w. Alpheus Hinton was part of it. The illustrationist and cartoonist Tom Feelings was part of it. They marched on the U.S. Embassy. And you can see if you a brother named Kevin Gaines, I think he teaches in Michigan, he did a whole book on that that repatriate community. But they protested that day. And in the play we did on Julian Mayfield, we reenacted that demonstration. I say that to say, what if every time we march in the United States we know that the Africans in Colombia will march on the US embassy, the Africans in Costa Rica, the Africans in Honduras, the Africans in Jamaica, the Africans in Haiti, the Africans in Barbados, the Africans in Antigua, the Africans in the Antilles, 190 million strong, which is really the best contribution we can make to Pan-Africanism. Because I think that what happens mistakenly is a lot of people, when they think of Pan-Africanism, they think of the African continent exclusively. Number one, they may not even know that the term was first used by a man named Henry Sylvester Williams out of Trinidad. And Trinidad is one of the fountainheads of Pan-Africanism that's in the Caribbean. Jamaica is one of the fountain. I mean, look at the Pan-Africanist out of Trinidad, Kwame Ture, Trinidad, George Padmore, Trinidad, Henry Sylvester Williams, Trinidad, Claudia Jones, Trinidad. Ah. And then when we look at that and you look at Garvey in Jamaica, so and Pan means all for people who don't know. I know our brothers and sisters, our sisters and brothers who at some point were who became alphas and deltas and kappas and sigmas and zetas, they know what we're talking about because they belong to the Pan-Hellenic Council, which is the umbrella for all the Greeks and fraternities and sororities. So when we say Pan-Africanism, we mean Africans everywhere, not just Africans on the continent exclusively. You know, the reason I asked that, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned Colombia because last week we had the – Brother Carlos, one of the organizers for the uh, Afro-Colombian Million Man March in seven cities in Colombia, and uh, he talked about what our people are suffering down there, which was shocking to not only me but to the listening audience. But I'm glad that you mentioned them. But the reason I I mentioned that question to you is because Mm -hmm. it it disheartened me uh, the past two weeks to hear some of our so-called leadership and Mm -hmm. and, uh, church pastors and all condemn uh, these two men for their actions. Uh, uh-huh. It it was uh, because I. It, you know, we, I'm glad we, you used the word. You 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 said you you said you were shocked. No, I said I said it disheartened me. I wasn't shocked. Oh, disheartened. You. It just disheartened me because here. people here, especially those church uh, pastors, uh-huh. people follow what they say. Mm-hmm. You know, it was reasons why uh, these uh-huh. men were killed and not able to be brought to trial. They tried to say that these uh, men had some type of mental deficiency. Of, Suffering post-traumatic slave syndrome. They have to. I mean, but, but post-traumatic they have to do stress. That. Well, look, this is this is the problem, and with the struggle against police terrorism, we we going to deal with this tonight because I think a lot of times when like, okay, and I, once again, are you talking about something you know? How do you know about it? Where the youth who? Because think about it. Remember how militant our response was in the 1990s to the Rodney King verdict? Okay. We were shutting down cities, weren't we? Weren't we? We were shutting down cities. Are cities being shut down now? No. And and, uh, the reason that I'm saying that is because the difference in the 90s was this. First of all, we're not going to – these are our children that are out here. Because people ask me all the time, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? I'm like, those are our children. They're us 26 years ago. So we're not going to. Um, and for people who don't like what they're doing, you get out there and do something different now. But anyway, 
with that being said, the only they are differences. We were more focused on we were focused on Africa and the Caribbean as well. Because if you go back and look at the same time when we were dealing with Rodney King, the Rodney King verdict or what have you, look what was going on in Africa. The everyday African let you know they did not want military neo-colonialism anymore. Samuel Doe was overthrown in Liberia. Babacha and Babangada were overthrown in Nigeria. Musa Traore in Mali, who the CIA used to overthrow Modibo Keita in Mali, was was overthrown. Um, Mobutu, the godfather of military neo-colonialism, the butcher of Patrice Lumumba, he was shown the door. Um, you... UNITA in Angola, the CIA created UNITA, was shown the door. Um, um, RENAMO in Mozambique was shown the door. So we neutralized military neocolonialism, so it showed that Africans were tired of military repression and violence and were rising up against the military-industrial intelligence police complex. But now, as it's become a more domestic fight, this is what we have to look at. We have more mayors now than we've ever had. And correct me, where everyone is trying to give President Obama a chance to um, get a sound bite in on this issue, and Lord knows he likes the sound of his own voice too damn much to begin with. But anyway, we got 700 mayors that look like us, and mayors have the same relationship to police that a president has to the military of a country. They are the commanders-in-chief. And you haven't heard anyone call for a sit-down with the National Conference of Black Mayors, as they're called, to ask them what's going on. But the reason, and that would be important because we know where their loyalties are. Another strategic recommendation that we got to look at is this. We got these two powerhouse health organizations, the National Medical Association and Black Nurses Association. The National Medical Association was created in 1896, the same year that the National Association of Colored Women was formed, the same year that Plessy versus Ferguson happened, the same year that uh, um, George Washington Carver was hired by Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee, the same year that Nehonda led the first armed revolt in Zimbabwe. So 1896 was a special year to us. But And they created that organization because they couldn't join the American Medical Association. And then you got the um, Black Nurses Association. We need to let them know what we want them to do. They need to make a demand of the National Fraternal Order of Police that they prove to us that every police officer in this country that has been involved in military combat in the last 15 or 20 years that is walking a beat or driving a squad car, we need proof that they don't suffer from post-war trauma or post-war syndrome. That hasn't been done. And then the other thing that needs to be done is because you, you have to go back. Anytime you talk about the police, someone is going to ask you this, and they could be from a, a multitude of demographics. They could be elderly women, elderly men, church-going people, business-going people, journalists, uh, whatever. And they'll say to you, brother, but we killing each other too. And we never respond to them and say, well, we know the police are selling the guns to the gangs. And I believe that this is, and we're confronted with that. It reminds me of when I read Du Bois' autobiography the first time, when he had the Crisis magazine and he was chronicling the lynchings, one of the Zionists that was on the board for the NAACP had the audacity to ask him, why don't you put Negro crimes next to the lynchings? And Du Bois just ignored that cracker. And 
the same way, but our people will ask that question. We we need to get the black um, National Conference of Black Lawyers, which says that they are the legal arm of the African liberation struggle, and the National Bar Association, which is more cosmopolitan, which is more mainstream. But we need to get them to ask the National Fraternal Order of Police of of documentation of all the police officers that were relieved of duty that are on suspension or investigation for selling guns to gangs. Because if the CIA could sell coke using Rick Ross, Freeway Ricky Ross, to do that in L.A. to keep a war going with the Iran-Contras, why would we think that the police aren't selling guns to bloods, aren't selling guns to crips, aren't selling guns to vice lords, aren't selling guns to disciples? And that way we deal with that aspect of it, and then we give it more dimension Last year was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. And didn't the Bureau of Special Services, the New York Police Department, keep a joint file with, on Malcolm with the FBI and CIA? We haven't called for a reopening of Malcolm's trial. We haven't pushed this country to have a trial for Dr. King. He never had one. A holiday, is that a good enough reason not to push for that? Is that big piece of furniture commonly referred to as a memorial? Is that a, big, is that a good enough reason not to do that? So this is what I'm saying. We are constantly at war with the military-industrial-intelligence-police complex. Why are we not having um, – there's been no discussion in the African community about reevaluating Barack Obama's um, – Africa policy. In eight years, he's been president. Wow. And people were excited when he had that Africa summit. That Africa summit, what it should have been called was the stay away from China summit, because that's all they discussed down there. And he didn't invite Zimbabwe, he didn't invite Eritrea, and he didn't invite Sudan, because Zimbabwe is the key contact to China for the whole African continent. And Zimbabwe is the reason why China in the last 10 years has built 20 agricultural centers in Africa to advance agriculture in Africa. And seven of those agricultural centers are in Southern Africa where 67% of the people bank on um, agriculture for their livelihood. They depend on agriculture for their livelihood. And last year, as y'all know, the theme for Africa was agriculture and food security. And this is very important because as we're sitting here, but going back to that police question, that's the problem. Number one, we don't consider the police struggle part of the struggle against the military-industrial-intelligence-police complex. It must be pan-Africanized. It must be rescued from the Democratic Party because it's been in the headlock of the Democratic Party because they know that they can always use that issue when it's time to vote for a president, when it's time for congressional elections or Senate elections. But it comes back to the local level. It's a mayoral issue. We need to sit down with these 700 mayors and ask them, why have they declared our babies domestic terrorists? Because when you ask people the image of a terrorist globally, their image is someone from Afghanistan or Pakistan or Palestine or Iran or Iraq. But the image of a domestic terrorist is a blood, a crip, a vice lord, a disciple, the youth in Baltimore, the youth in Chicago. And then it goes back to education, as you also put it, because we're outraged by the fact we're getting gunned down by law enforcement every 28 hours, I think it is, according to the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Props to them for putting that out. But also, but we are losing 800 kids every day. 800 African children drop out of school every day. We're 10.5% 
of that dynamic, of that demographic. And that's a dynamic we have to look at. And when they were trying to shut down Chicago State University, when the Republican governor came out and said, uh, Ron is his name, and he came out and said that there was no money for the 12 public universities in Illinois, and the first one they targeted was Chicago State University, which is not a HBCU, but is what's called a PBI, predominantly black institution. And 55% of the students there are first-generation college students. And another 40% of them live in the poor section of Chicago where the majority of people in those communities are surviving off less of $10,000 a year. And what's so interesting about that is right now, Florida A&M has the highest HBCU student population. They're approaching 14,000. Who comes after them are Howard and A&T. And in, in Zimbabwe, in a place called Gweru, there's a university called Midland State University where I teach when I'm in Zimbabwe because they, for whatever reason, think I'm smart enough. They, their student population is 25,000 undergrads and 3,800 grads. So how can a country under debilitating sanctions be able to maintain a university when every HBCU we have, when they end the school year, they're trying to figure out if they're going to be able to open the doors in the fall? Let me grab this call before we wind things down. 704 area code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, this is Brother Scotty calling from North Carolina. Greetings, uh, Brother Elliot and uh, Reggie and Brother Ralph. And to your guests, uh, sir, I didn't catch your name. Oh, Brother Obi Igbona Jr. Hey, greetings to you, Brother Obi. Um, you said so much there, and you're sharing a lot of great information. But one of the things that stood out to me that you spoke on that I just wanted to call in and, and, and provide evidence to support what you're saying is that, you know, it, it does irks me. It irks me, but I do understand not to say that it's right, but I understand where it's coming from. But when when we talk about the violence that police sworn officers are doing to our community. You know, some of our people have been programmed with that response. Uh, well, what about black on black crime? But mm -hmm. they never, they never realized that the government is also responsible for that too. And, <laughs> and you, you mentioned mm -hmm. about the guns. I don't know if you saw this latest uh, uh, cop, this Mike cop out of Miami, who just mm -hmm. got busted for providing the Mexican drug gang, the Zetas, with, mm -hmm. with weapons. And you're not going to tell me he was doing that by himself. He ain't the only one, but I guess he's going to be the fall guy. And that's then, right. now, that's the, that's the guns. Um, not to mention, the U.S. government has walked a whole bunch of guns across that border and put them in the hands of the of the gangs. Now, don't think that those gangs ain't walked them right across that border and then sell, and selling them in our community. That's but again, pe I mean, people just don't have all the information, man. It's hard to make, mm -hmm. you know, a determination on the pro on what the problems are or the solutions to the problems when you yeah, don't you have know. all the information. But then mm -hmm. on the flip side, the drugs. A lot of people don't know this, but Michelle Lionheart, they finally forced her to resign because of a scandal of DEA agents in Colombia participating in sex parties that were paid for by drug cartels down there. That's when they finally forced her to resign. But mm -hmm. the DEA had a deal 
with the Zetas competition, which was the uh, Sinaloa drug cartel, which allowed them to smuggle dope across the border all the way to Chicago. All right, mm. this was a deal. It's long gas. It's long as the um uh, um uh, what's the name of them? I just said their name. Um, not the Zetas, but um the Sinaloa. All the Sinaloa cartel had to do was feed information to the DEA so that they could bust their rivals, which would be the Zetas. So mm-hmm. I'm just saying, man, all, all of this is orchestrated and engineered by people in government. And, and so mm-hmm. when people start talking about that black-on-black crime stuff, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a problem that we got to solve, but it's not a problem we created, and we should understand that. Thank you for taking my call. Thank, Thank you, Brother Scott. And um, real, and the other part of that, too, um, that was excellent, excellent comment. Um, the other thing, too, and this is what we teach our students, um, starting with our nine-year-olds, one of the things that we have not done is we don't make a distinction between blue-collar crime and white-collar crime, and that's very important when we're dealing with um, uplifting our community. Blue-collar crime are poor people's crimes, hungry people's crimes, desperate people's crimes. Example, a blue-collar criminal might hotwire your car. White-collar criminals are firestone. The tires that are on that car, they go to Liberia and steal the rubber and make billions of dollars off the rubber. That's white-collar crime. Michael Vick gets killed, uh, does federal time for fighting dogs. That's blue-collar crime. Britain, between 1788 and 1884, um, killed 70,000 elephants a year and took an average of 100 tons a year out of Africa of ivory to sell to um and the billion-dollar uh, furniture companies, jewelry companies, and piano companies. That is where they made their fortune from. That's white-collar crime. Blue-collar crime, someone who may steal your iPhone when it's laying down. If you leave it down, they'll take it. Or white-collar crime, going to um, the Congo and um, taking the coltan, which is necessary to make an iPad, make an iPhone, make an iPod, make a laptop, Make a desktop. That's white-collar crime. And there are no white-collar criminals in our communities in Chicago, in Baltimore, in D.C., in New York, in, in uh, New Jersey, in North Carolina, in Selma, or any of these places. The white-collar criminals, we never get a chance to meet them. And as we know, when African elected officials flirt with white-collar crime, like Jesse Jackson Jr. or Harry Thomas or uh, George Grace, the former mayor of St. Gabriel, when they flirt with white-collar crime, when they moonlight as white-collar criminals, they throw them at the bottom of the jail. Matter of fact, I would say that white-collar crime is the last bastion of segregation within United States borders. So we should fight white-collar crime, and we should tell the blue-collar criminals in our community, don't let the biggest criminals on earth turn you into a petty criminal because that's all you are is a petty petty criminal and um that's what we have to do but i think it goes back to this struggle that dr carter g woodson talked to us about when he was dealing um that chapter nine in miseducation of the negro when he exposed that it was never meant for us to learn the constitution because you can't tell people that they have a responsibility about their role in society 
if they don't understand how their society functions that they live in. That's why it's hilarious when you see NBA players or NFL players or actors or actresses talk about being role models and they don't know their role in society and you can't know your role in society if you don't know how the society functions that you live in and it was never meant for us to learn how capitalism functions because when we learn how it functions we learn that we are at its mercy we learn about the cycle of exploitation that we've been subjected to and we won't do anything but intensify our resistance against it let me grab this last call before we go. 215 Eric Code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, Brother Elliot. How you doing, my brother? How are you, sir? It sounded like I'm a little back. noise in the background. Was it a fan in the background? Yeah, let me, let me move away from the fan. No, we just listen. It's 100 degrees, so we would listen. <laughs> <laughs> I want to with the car. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. How you doing, Brother Regs and Brother Ralph and Brother Obi? How you doing, my brother? How you feeling, man? How are you? I'm doing fine. All praise be to Allah. Uh, brother Obi, you, you, you like Brother Scotty from North Carolina. Yes, so you got a, you, you like a wealth of information tonight, brother. You just got you, you, you got my head spinning with all the things you're saying tonight. Yeah, I mean, you really got my head spinning, and for, and for good too. I mean, you, you really, you know, I learned a lot listening to you tonight. But one of the things you said, brother Obi, is, and I had told this to Brother Elliot before in our previous conversations about the police. When, when them two devils, when that devil stood on the car in Cleveland a couple of years ago and shot the sister and brother who, by the way, brother Obi, as you know, didn't commit no crime and this cracker gunned them down, shot a hundred pounds in the car. That devil mm-hmm. was a former military veteran. He was an army veteran. And that's, mm-hmm. this the, and that's the concern I brought up to Elliot a long time ago. A lot of these devils, cops, just kill our people. When you, when you look at their background, because I did my own little personal research, a lot of them had been in the military. You know, yes. and, and I made that connection and stuff to Elliot. I said, Elliot, I said, well, a lot of devils. We we we've been we've been focusing on that since our teens. But the problem is, we don't. That's why we said the military-industrial intelligence police complex, because what the weakness is now is people mm-hmm. are not are hesitant to say that the struggle against the police is part of the struggle against the FBI, the CIA, yes. the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. It's easier for us in D.C., brother, because we're every day. I see more cops in one day than most people in the U.S. will see their whole life. Every day we see the DEA. Every day we see the ATF. We even have library police now. Y'all hear me? We have library police. That's, we got it. We got the Capitol Hill police. We got yes. the public transportation police, park police with no jurisdiction. So, and whenever we're focusing on this, this is why when Clinton, like Bush, gets credit for the Homeland Security model, but Clinton was the one that said that if the FBI and DEA merged, the United States would save 185 billion dollars in national security. Mm-hmm. And when you, and one of the and one of the insta, one of the organizations that needs to be talked that needs to be questioned in our community is um, the Hebrew Israelites because it is said that the Hebrew Israelites now have members that are jo- have joined the Israeli army mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they need to clear that and they need they need to answer for that <laughs> not only because of our solidarity with the Palestinian people. But the fact that um, they would feel the need because they're true Hebrews. They embrace the doctrine that's in association with the first monotheistic form of spiritual and religious expression known to man. But they're out here now fighting with the Israeli army. Israel that was against self-determination for Tunisia, 
self-determination for Algeria, Israel, who recognized South Africa and yes. recognized Rhodesia and recognized Portugal. And the reason I say that is because for many people who, after 2001, who were part of the efforts at the United Nations Conference Against Racism in South Africa, and they got introduced to the Palestinian question, the solidarity with Palestine, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. We consider Israel the enemy of Africa for what they have done on the African continent and continue right. to do on the African continent. So if we have entities in our community who are cozy with these organ institutions, cozy with the military, industrial, intelligence, police complex, we have a fundamental problem. <laughs> Colin Powell took a job by the Board of Trustees at Howard so that he could go ahead and get ROTCs at all the HBCUs. Howard University has a place called the Ralph Bunch Center, and mm -hmm. that center, Charles, Charles, Congressman Charles Rangel put oh, up Lord. some money. He put up some money. He was saying that there's disparity in terms of Africans being part of the diplomatic corps in this country. So now they have youth that go and do internships with the State Department, hoping to get them in diplomacy one day. So that means more Condoleezza Rices, more oh, Susan no. Rices, more Johnny Carsons. And the only difference between Condoleezza Rice and Susan Rice is complexion and yes, first name and yes. party affiliation. You ain't they never are both that, reactionary. Right? They are both enemy. And because, you know, we have that sweet tooth for white li for liberals, so we'll, dis so we'll absolve the Democrats of all their atrocities against mm -hmm. us, but we'll cry bloody murder if Republicans do the same thing. And what's so funny about that is Susan Rice did her doctorate on Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. so, every, so everything that comes out of Bar um, Barack Obama's mouth that's nasty about President Mugabe, that's nasty about Zimbabwe, that's coming out of, if you consider it um, garbage, Susan Rice is the one that's dumping the garbage down his throat. And, and before that, it was Johnny Carson, who was the highest ranking African to ever work for the National Intelligence Council, mm -hmm. which was when, when Truman created the CIA, the objective of the National Intelligence Council was to give strategic estimates to the CIA, this is the best way to assassinate Lumumba. This is mm -hmm. the best way to overthrow Nkrumah. This is the best way to assassinate Emilcar Cabral. This is the... the Poison Malcolm in Egypt, don't mm -hmm. kill him on U.S. soil. This is what they were created to do. But the problem is, one, when Truman desegregated the military and that monster called integration, that's the other thing with this police issue. You'll have certain Africans, like you see this, you see this child on CNN every night, Bakari Sellers. Now, here he is talking about yes. he cried for the police, and the police shot his daddy, Cleveland Sellers. The distinguished SNCC alum. He was shot. He was shot when he was in SNCC, and he's sitting up there crying for the police. The same way that Harry Belafonte refused an award from Africare for for a lifetime achievement award because Colin Powell was going to be honored, and a lot mm -hmm. of people said, "Way to go, Harry!" But at the same time, Belafonte was on the board of he was on the board of advisors and directors for Trans Africa Forum who was funneling national endowment for democracy money into Zimbabwe to overthrow President Mugabe and 
Colin Powell was the Secretary of State when the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act of 2001, which are the sanctions, were imposed on Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. So there's Belafonte showboating in public, like Colin Powell is deplorable, but him and Colin Powell are just as are equally were equally committed to regime change in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. I guess it was a Jamaican thing. So I, I so so I think so I think that these are the things that so when we deal with the military industrial intelligence police complex we have to show how the police because as you brilliantly put it the police that are out there in the streets today they fought in Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq yes. they were they were trained by their captains fought in Vietnam their captains fought in World War II their captains fought in World War One. And the United States is the world's police. And then, we, and then I think that people forget Barack Obama's compelling words during his first um, inauguration. He said, the might of our military must be matched by the strength of our diplomacy. Mm -hmm. So that means that if they cannot bomb a country, if they cannot assassinate the leader, they'll starve those people to death. That's why Raul Castro took him to school and told him, it's nice you came down here and you, I'm paraphrasing this part, but he said, you're, but he said this, he said, you, your, gest, your recent gestures are welcome, but they're insufficient. Well, with, and that was a nice way of telling him, to hell with your field trip to Cuba. Until mm -hmm. you lift the blockade on Cuba, you haven't done anything. And that's the bottom. And since we and since we know when during his first campaign he mm -hmm. said that the people of Cuba have never known democracy, have never known human rights, all of a sudden he's being paraded around as the liberator of a country that's already independent. So we saw how fraudulent we saw how fraudulent that was just to have civil conversations. But only the Africans in our community who see themselves as Democrats first, Judeo-Christian second, and Africans a distant third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh, they're the only ones who will accept that narrative and propagate that narrative and spread that narrative. When we oh, go yeah. against the military industrial intelligence police complex, it puts us on a no turning back collision course yes. with the Democrats and Republicans, and our pe and a lot of people are not ready to do that yet. I agree, Joe, brother, I Thank you for your call, man. Hey, but brother Alec, can I close with these last comments? Brother Obi, you're absolutely right <laughs> what you're saying. You know, on the Hebrew Israelites that I see in the community, you know, it's funny we bring that up because I've, I've been watching them, brothers, for years, and, and why I would always, you know, admire what they would say when they'd be, you know, trashing the, the European, the white man, and all that stuff. But I noticed over the last, I mentioned to a good friend of mine who's in the nation of Islam, like myself, and I noticed they, they, they've been taking a text on Islam over the last couple of days. They, they would say stuff like Islam is just like Christianity, it's a fraud, and it's the white man's religion, and they would say all this crazy stuff. So I said, well, brothers, I said, hey, what's wrong with the attack? The Honorable Elijah Muhammad and, and, and attack Islam like that. And then I started thinking of stuff, right? And it all goes back to what you just said about them. When, you know, joined the Israeli army, and then I heard a sister, I don't know if L.A. remember this, I was in, in the car with Brother Elliot a while ago, and his sister was on, and she was, you know, trashing Islam all over the place, but then she took whatever credibility had, not that she had any brother over, but she took whatever credibility she had, because she, at the mm -hmm. end of the conversation, she told the host, I think it was Carl Nelson, she told him that she support Benjamin Netanyahu, and, he, and what a friend he was yeah. to black people, and I said to my sister, you've got to be kidding me, I said, are you hey, serious, sister? But she, but uh, and that's, see, that's one call, of those Joe. things, and that's one of those things that we, through through this through fighting this military industrial intelligence police complex, 
we start digging bones and we start exposing certain relationships that are not public knowledge. That way, when we take appropriate action, we know strategically who our targets are and why they're our targets. Uh, that, why, take, that way we maximize potential. I'm going to take one more call because we didn't really went over, but let's, let's take one more call. Oh, I'm Six, sorry, man. Ain't no, sorry. Come on, ain't no problem. 646 area code, what's your name? Where you calling from? Yeah, right quick. This is Jay. You you mentioned wait, wait, wait a, a minute, name. Jay, Jay, where you calling from? Oh, New York. You you <laughs> mentioned the name of one of the most dangerous Negroes America is producing at this time, Bakari Sellers. <laughs> he must be watched. He is the next Obama. He's more <laughs> of an evil spirit. Than Cory Booker was, and we all thought that Cory was gonna be the man before Obama, but things just didn't work out. Remember yeah. what happened in South Carolina with that Neanderthal Dylan Roof and the people in the church. Well, Sellers was one of the quickest ones to come out and start that forgiveness nonsense. In mm-hmm. regards to that Neanderthal, okay. that guy right there needs to be watched more closely than any black man in America at this present day. There okay. is no one out there like him. I don't know if y'all catch his act that often on CNN, but the mm-hmm. only thing worse than him is Donna Brazil in a close second is that Angela Rye. The only thing that prevents them two from getting a bigger position is that they are women. But sellers must be watched. Also remember this. Van Jones has had his opportunity, and he blew it. So mm-hmm. I just think we need to really put the word out about this Bakari Sellers, especially if Hillary Clinton doesn't um, get into office. And if she does get into office, it would just expediate his role in um, America's politics in regard to us as a people. So, you know, let's let's be aware of that, of that Negro, man. He's extremely, extremely dangerous. And I think, you know, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to be able to put that clown on blast and maybe cut him at his knees in a similar fashion would happen with Booker. Because remember, the guy Perez was supposed to get the vice presidency, but it seems like this character Kane got it, which is totally against the principles and values of the Sanders people. So things are going to get real, real interesting, and hopefully next week, Brother Elliot and Reggie, you all have somebody on that will deal with this dog and pony show that will be going on for the next week with these um, the Democrats. So I'll, I'll get off the air, and I'll listen, you good brothers. <laughs> Thank you for your call, Jay. Yeah, um, real quickly, what he said about Dylan Roof, and this is once again, if even if we fail to make certain pivotal connections, the enemy will do it. Now, when everyone was sitting there outraged about Dylan Roof, all you had to do was look at his picture. On his army jacket, he had flags of what? 
of Rhodesia and South Africa, did he not? <laughs> so Dylan Roof is 20 years old. And so when he went in there and butchered our people in South Carolina, he did it in the name of Ian Smith. He did it in the name of Jeffrey Huggins. He did it in the name of Cecil Rhodes. He did it in the name of Botha. He did it in the name of DeClerc. He did it in the name of Jan Smuts. He didn't just do it in the name of uh, Jackson or in the name of Reagan or in the name of Bush. He did it in the name of those colonialists. And I found, and one of the things we said, we would like to, um, that's Sister Bree Newsom, because when we stand up, she climbed up and took down that um, Confederate flag. What should have been waiting for her when she slid back down that pole was the flag of Zimbabwe. And we say, now, you carry this, you wave this. And I think that it's very important for us to have alternatives whenever we um, are resisting this enemy. So if we say we don't want to go a certain, if we, don't want to, if we don't embrace a certain vision, well, this is the path that we need to go to. And I think that that's very important to mention. So whenever we talk about Dylan Roof, don't just talk about him in the context of South Carolina. You have to talk about the fact that he did that in the name of Rhodesia, and he did that in the name of apartheid South Africa. So he's looking beyond U.S. borders. So if he's going to rally around Ian Smith, rally around um, Jeffrey Huggins, rally around Cecil Rhodes, why can't we rally around President Mugabe and the people of Zimbabwe? It makes no sense at all. Brother Obi, tell the people how they can read your column, how they can uh, follow you. Oh, uh, actually, you know, I'm not going to promote my column. They can just read the Herald uh, every day. They can go to www.herald.co.zw. My column comes out on Fridays, but the good thing about my column, even though I have to make special arrangements to get Brother Elliot articles so he can post them, thank you so much for posting them, but we want you to read the whole newspaper. And the paper comes out six hours ahead, so you can get a chance to read that. For those of you who haven't heard the three albums that M1 from Dead Prez and I have produced, Battle Cry for Cuba and Zimbabwe, where um, the link is Battle Cuba Zim, Z-I-M, BattleCubaZim.wordpress.com. For people who are interested in um, looking at the videos of our theater company, they can go to our Facebook page, Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater, uh, Facebook page as we're revitalizing um, our website right now um, so that people can have the opportunity to do that. And um, the, we will be getting information out about the roving, cla um, roving um, classroom concept. And we have a surprise, Brother Elliot, which we didn't talk about today, that it will be ready in about another week and a half. And it's going to really make people settled and feel real good and embrace their African fighting spirit. And um, we're going to have more information about the All-African Children's um, Festival. We're having a press conference on August 29th. We want you to come and physically be there at the press conference, Brother Elliot. And we'd like you to identify people in Philadelphia who would like to organize. And the activity is centered around children. The activity is centered around children. Because we know that some of us have a disease called lecturitis, and they'll try to use that opportunity to talk about the activity but not give the activity any support. They'll just piggyback off our labor and our service. All activities should be centered around children. It can be a basketball game, a double Dutch competition, a checkers, a chess tournament, African dancing and drumming, 
b-ball, flag football, as long as it's our babies. So we can showcase their talents and at the same time talk about how all the problems in the world are impacting on them, whether we're talking about health challenges, educational challenges, political challenges, economic challenges, everything under the sun. We'll come back on to talk about it more in detail, but it's a call to action because we assembled twice in Washington last year, the NAACP's America's Journey to Justice, of course, justice or else, but this time we're saying we should organize wherever we are all over the world simultaneously at the same time, and our children become the vehicle of this transition that we're making, where we're making resistance the cornerstone of our narrative, and we're moving away from the narrative that's rooted in victimization, where we're telling too many big bad wolf stories about U.S. EU imperialism. And for those who continue to propagate that narrative, Stephen King already got horror stories on lock. <laughs> Bro, Obi. Thanks for being with us, man. And I'll talk to yeah, you soon. Thank you. <laughs> Peace. All right. Well, thanks, Reg. tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Are you one of the million conscious black people who believes that we have the collective wherewithal to affect real economic and political change? If so, band together in solidarity 
by joining the one million conscious black voters and contributors. Choose leadership that will work for the best interests of black people. We can no longer sit on the sidelines and expect things to change for the better without a significant number of black people playing a pivotal role in that effort. Will you be one of the million that recognizes that black dollars matter? Are you that person who believes it's time to leverage our votes for reciprocity from politicians? If so, then you should join the one million conscious black voters and contributors with members in 29 states and growing every day. We encourage you to sign up and help spread the word by sharing our website, I am one of the million.com. That's I am one of the million.com. Yo, throw that Bobby Hemme DVD in the garbage, man. Oh, that water, man. Yeah. Speak to him, Lord. Somewhere, a black man's eyes wells up in the dark. Away from his peers. Away from his queen. Away from his offspring. That's right. Coming to a fork in the road. And not realizing that he cannot stand still. Cause sometimes life isn't about right or wrong Just left or right Gotta keep it moving The stress, the pressure, the respect of your woman The admiration of your child Almost obsolete That's the breadwinner When the flower is provided by the enemy If your only resource is labor Or at least that's what they'll pay for Slavery, God what happens when they could get it for cheaper? Man, no. Have we got an amnesia as to what a man is and what a man does? Like power. Is the possibility of death too great? Is the fear of physical confinement hindering your proper judgment? I just got locked up last week. See, death is a guarantee. And you might just get knocked just because. That's word. Now, your woman condescends. Cause she just can't understand how she could get a job, but you cannot. You gotta create our own job. Right. And look at the places you go and the people you fraternize with. Cause they say a lot about your character. And whether you are who you say you are. White supremacy has struck a deadly blow. But our vital signs persist. When we know better, an excuse is just. An excuse. Hurry up, stop talking. And whether you fully comprehend or not, you're a man. Stand up, let him know, Lord. And manhood is your birthright. Stand up. It is your job to know what that entails, black man. And it cannot be defined by our natural adversary. For his ways are not ours. Do we allow our boys to be feminized? Do we allow our girls to be masculinized? Hell no. Because sheep get on the defensive. Or do we muster manhood and stand firm on our principles? Stay strong, Lord. I leave that up to you, brother. But as you dry your face and contemplate your next move, keep in mind that devils love doubt. And if you don't know how to be a man, they will show you how. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And I want to thank our guest this evening, Sister Carolyn Hall was one of the organizers for the Black Expo 2016 in New York City. Uh, the uh, website, you can go there and get the discount tickets to attend the expo and get involved. 
and uh, thank our special guest that was with us in the second hour of the program, Pan-Africanist playwright and U.S. correspondent to the Herald at Zimbabwe's national newspaper, Brother Obi Ekbona Jr. was with us. Always a wealth of information, Brother Obi, and it's good to have him share with our listening audience about things going on internationally that affect our people nationally. All of these things are related, brothers, so we this is a worldwide struggle. So we have to be involved on all fronts. And again, you can get involved here with the movement, One Million Conscious Black Contributors and Voters. Go to IamOneOfTheMillion.com. That's IamOneOfTheMillion.com. Read the planks. Read the mission statement. Get in where you fit in. Become part of the solution and not part of the problem. I want to thank everybody for being with us this evening. Lively discussion, as always. And we'll be back next week, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing after school They seem to be
What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.